Welcome to the Red Letter Christians podcast. The following episodes are part of a two-part town hall series conversation on abortion that took place in October 2020 and January 2021. For more information, please visit us at redletterchristians.org. Thank you for being part of the conversation. We are here for a very special conversation. Uh, it's a conversation between men and women on abortion and reproductive justice in the evangelical, from an evangelical point of view. All of us are a Christian point of view, and many of us have evangelical backgrounds, still identify as evangelical. Um, and so this is an important time for us to be having this conversation. Over the last year or more in my life, I've had several of these conversations, um, but this is the first one that I've had that is actually cross-gendered, where we, we're talking to each other. So we thought this would be very, very valuable. It's an opportunity for us at a critical moment in our whole nation's history for the people who are in the middle of the movement that has brought the nation to this, this edge point um, based on this one issue to have this conversation. So I'd like to uh, begin us to start us in prayer. All right, great. So let's pray um, and open our time, inviting God to be with us in conversation. Holy, holy, holy God, we thank you. We thank you for bringing us to this point. Thank you for the courage to speak honestly, to listen deeply, to ask questions, to understand. Thank you for the moment that we're in, finally, where silence is being broken and we are allowing you to speak directly to us through each other, through the scripture and through your spirit. So we invite your spirit to be with us today as well. God, we also pray that you would be with each person who's watching and listening. Speak to all of us tonight. And may this conversation be added to the chorus of conversations that are happening around the country on this issue. And may they all preserve your work among us, preserve your church most of all. I pray these things in your name. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you, Lisa. It's been a gift to pray and discern and dream about this conversation together. I like Lisa. I haven't had. I haven't been a part of many good conversations uh, on abortion. And every single person that we've invited um, has in common their humility their kindness, and also their passion for, for life and for Jesus. We share that, you know, that faith in common. And we're centering abortion tonight um, because we want to give it the time that it deserves, but we also want to encourage all of us to put this on the whole array of uh, priorities and things that matter for faith voters. And it really is, and, and not in outside the election, just as people of faith, right? This is not just an election, but it is obvious that we're in the middle of one. Um, and it, we're going to be asking some important questions. For instance, how did something that Jesus didn't say anything about specifically become the one thing that some Christians can only talk about when it comes to politics? And it's um, something that scripture is sort of vague on, and it doesn't mean that it doesn't matter. I mean, scripture and Jesus didn't talk about nuclear weapons either, and they matter, but, but it's to say that like, um, that we need a better conversation on this. And as I've been, you know, we've been preparing for this, we've seen this kind of in, um, uh, frustration on both the left and the right. We've had folks uh, that tend to be on the more conservative side saying, why aren't you saying more about abortion? And folks that tend to be on the more liberal so side saying, at least to me, why are you talking about abortion? You don't have a uterus, you know? So we're trying to have a better conversation between folks that are 
just saying, it, it, hands off, it's my body. And the other folks that are saying, you're baby killers and murderers. Like, let's actually have the spirit of Jesus uh, among us in this co conversation. And, uh, you know, I, as I was getting ready, I polled folks on my social media and I was amazed by the response. I mean, thousands and thousands of people responded to a couple of questions that just named the tension, right? And one of those was, when does life begin? And some folks said, you know, it begins at conception. Other people said it begins with a heartbeat. Others said it begins with fetal viability, you know, when the baby can live outside the womb. Other people said it begins at birth and at breath. Um, so, but what I saw was that 50% of folks in out of like 7,000 said that it begins at conception. But then what was interesting was as I did another poll asking, should it be legal or illegal? And a couple of variations of that, the biggest response over two thirds of folks said that it should be legal, safe and rare. So that, you know, we're holding these tensions and we want to have a good conversation tonight as we name some of those things like when does an unborn child have rights and what do we do when they conflict with the rights of the mother? We want to think we want to talk about scripture because there are scriptures that can inform how we think about this, even though they don't name abortion, maybe in the same sense that we're talking about it. Uh, and as Ron and some others are going to point out that um, the early Christians did talk about this, but it wasn't the only thing that they talked about. They talked about a whole host of issues of life. And we've got folks that are going to talk about how this became the really central issue for white evangelicals. And it is important that there are a lot of folks that care about abortion, but in a recent poll just uh, a week or so ago, the American Values Poll showed that the only group of, of Christians who saw this as a priority in this election were white evangelicals. Even Catholics didn't name it as one of their top three priorities. So, and younger people are thinking about life in a much uh, broader sense than just abortion. So, you know, for my own personal journey, I grew up passionate about abortion. Um, I was, I organized the Bush Quail campaign and I said I was pro-life, but then I began to see some of the contradictions that we'll see tonight, right? That um, I, I, I was pro-life on abortion, but uh, pro-death on almost everything else. And the irony is that you can be pro-guns, pro-death penalty, pro-military, anti-environment, and still say you're pro-life as long as you've got this issue right on abortion. So we're going to talk about life, but we're also going to think about it as broader than just life before birth. It's also about life after birth too. So we're so grateful that you're joining us. And for some of you that are watching um, uh, this afterwards, um, come with a posture of humility and of love and of openness. And, and also the other thing I wanna say is that I had no idea years ago how many people this touches in a very personal way. So as a man, I'm, I'm very aware that I'm a man and we've, we've got, you know, a little of the table tilted tonight. There's five women and four men, but we did want this to be not, not a conversation that's happening in gendered silos, right? We want to talk with each other and learn from each other. And, and but as, as a, a, a man, you know, I, when I heard that by the age of 45, one in every four women has had an abortion, I think it's so important that we not just talk about issues in an abstract sense, but that we really, um, we listen to women, we, we listen to those who have 
had the excruciating decision of trying to, to face this issue head on. And also as a man, I think we've got a name that men have been a part of the toxicity and the problem. Sometimes it is the inaction or the action, the bad actions of men that have created this dilemma to begin with. So we do wanna be in the conversation, but I wanna do a lot of listening tonight. And I, I, I'm here to learn as much as to share. So I'm gonna pass it back to Lisa and she's gonna get us uh, going tonight. So thanks for joining us. You're muted. Okay, so thank you so much, Shane. Really appreciate that. And, and I actually, I just wanna say that all of the questions that you asked are so burning. Um, we're all thinking of them. Um, they, are, they are still very raw and I'm really looking forward to the conversation the way that you laid it out. Um, I do wanna introduce myself. I'm Lisa Sharon Harper. I'm the president and founder of Freedom Road and LLC. Uh, we are a consulting group that uh, specializes on the margin of helping people to do justice more justly. Um, and so about the same year that I walked down the aisle and gave my life to Jesus, I made him a, um, uh, allowed him into my heart and accepted him as my Lord and Savior. Um, that was the exact same year of the birth of the moral majority, 1983. And, you know, soon, very soon after walking down the aisle with Jesus, I was told I had to become a Republican. Um, now, I was actually too young to vote, so I don't really know what they were thinking I would do with that. But very, very quickly, I went back to my mother and tried to convince her to vote for Ronald Reagan. And mind you, she was in SNCC, okay, in the 1960s. She dated Stokely Carmichael for like a minute, and she was like, who are you and what have you done with my daughter? Um, that, of course, uh, well, it definitely created a major break in my relationship with her. Um, and I found myself at pro-life rallies throughout college. And I challenged my whole family on this issue. I was a believer, um, particularly on the pro-life side. Um, I, my relationship with my mom was utterly ruined because of this, because when she told me, um, as she has written about now, and as she has given me permission to share that she has had two abortions in her life, one because she was young and scared and the other because her life was at risk. My answer to the life at risk um, abortion was how could you? That's how deep into this I was. And that shattered our relationship literally for more than a decade. Over the past decade, I have become aware of the ways that my faith was actually shaped in a political cauldron it was shaped in a framework that was designed for war, literally designed for warfare. It was designed to have winners and losers. It was designed in a black and white framework, not human, but rather right or wrong, either right or wrong, no in between. I've been having a lot of conversations as I talked about earlier. And what I've come to understand myself is that I think the way out of this predicament, this deep division that we have in our nation is to rehumanize this issue so that it is not just an issue, but it's actually about human beings, human beings that God cares about and loves and walks with and understands the stories of every single day. So this, this conversation, I wanna say is also a time for healing, healing in the way that we have the conversation. It's a time for listening it's a time for asking the hard questions in order to understand. 
And so I'd like to introduce our first um, uh, person who will come and help us to open with a word and, and by way of introduction, um, share uh, her own story is Elena Ramsey. So Elena is the executive director of Red Letter Christians. And separately, she leads the push for reproductive justice in the state of Ohio. So Elena, would you come forward? Hello, everyone. Give me one second, get my video up here. Mm -hmm. <laughs> oh, friends, um, thank you so much for having me and for hosting this critical discussion. I want to help ground us this evening by um, doing exactly what Shane and Lisa have done and by naming and inviting us all to recognize that we each contain multitudes that we all come to this discussion with just a range of personal experiences, our own understandings of scripture, and our own values and beliefs that have been shaped by our communities and our circumstances. And as for me, that means um, celebrating and honoring the many differences um, and identities and journeys that I have witnessed and engaged in that have formed me into a faithfully pro-choice advocate for abortion access. I am formerly a fundamentalist evangelical. I am a second generation immigrant. I am a rape survivor. I am a cisgender, able-bodied, heterosexual woman from the Midwest. But most of all, I am a child of God. And all too often, we know that this debate on abortion can make us forget who we are and whose we are as image bearers of the creator and the divine. But I believe that we must do better. And it starts with each and every one of us tonight as we gather this evening and as we witness and watch and tune in from home. I believe we can do better than demonizing and dehumanizing one another when discussing abortion. I believe we can do better than treating women and pregnant people as if their worth is only in their womb. And I believe that we can do better than insisting that abortion and single issue voting is a litmus test of our faith when it is Jesus who is the author perfecter and substance of our faith. And so that is my hope and my prayer for our time together. May it be so. Mm. May it be so. It's a, a, an honor to get to lead Red Letter Christians with Elena. And we've actually had some exchanges on our website where we've, we've been in conversation with this. So in some ways, this is the fruit of some of that conversation. And um, I'm able to have someone like Elena that I can say, hey, when I say this about abortion, is that helpful? And sometimes she'll say, no, that's, that's not helpful. And I, I think we need to be able to have those kind of frank conversations. And I'm so grateful for you, Elena. Um, and I, I get to bring the next person into this circle. The way that this is gonna roll tonight is less like a panel. We are using the, the language of town hall because it, it, this really is a serious discussion we're gonna have, but it's not panelists as much as what we've, we've been calling ourselves conversation partners. 
And that's really what we hope to model and, and not just the substance, but the way that we do it. We want to have that kind of spirit of love. And, and the next person I want to bring into the circle tonight is Reverend Rob Shank, who he models that kind of humility. Um, he's, he's someone that I, I just admire. We work together on a whole host of things. Um, um, we, we've been a voice uh, for alternatives to the death penalty. We've done work, especially around gun violence. He's been a real leader in the movement to reduce gun violence. Um, but he's got an interesting story. You're going to get just a snapshot, and each of us will share more, you know, as the conversation unfolds. But Rob was at the forefront of the anti-abortion movement in the 1980s, and uh, and and now it just has a much more um, profound way of how he thinks about life and what it means to follow Jesus. So tell us a little of that story, Rob, and then we'll get we'll hear more later. Sure. Uh, thanks, Shane, and thanks one and all for inviting me into the conversation. Uh, you know, I've been a born-again, Bible-believing, evangelical Christian for nearly 50 years, all of my adult life. And uh, for uh, 40 or so, uh, ordained in ministry. And when I think about my journey, uh, I think about it as kind of uh, a story of three conversions. The first to the Jesus of the Sermon on the Mount, who spoke about uh, love for God, for neighbor, uh, for uh, the poor, the lonely, uh, the oppressed, the suffering. But then came a moment uh, when I had another conversion to what I now call Ronald Reagan Republican religion, which is distinctly different, I think, uh, from Christianity. Uh, and that propelled me uh, into a number of circles, including the one Shane just alluded to, uh, and that was uh, the very aggressive wing of America's anti-abortion movement. And I like the way Shane characterized that because I think there is a distinction between uh, the phrase pro-life and anti-abortion. So I blockaded clinics, I went to jail on a number of occasions, I once confronted Bill Clinton in the sanctuary of the National Cathedral in Washington uh, on his uh, uh, veto of the then Partial Birth Abortion Act in the 1990s. I was detained by the Secret Service, threatened with 25 years to life in prison for that. Uh, and, uh, you know, of course, uh, I saw uh, a lot behind the scenes once I got to Washington in the early 1990s and would spend uh, 25 years uh, on Capitol Hill, uh, interfacing with leaders of Congress, presidents, and for, the, for 10 years, face-to-face -face with the justices of the Supreme Court. And I remember the day I was sitting in the United States Capitol, and I heard a senator use the phrase, abortion is murder, for the first time on the floor of the United States Senate. And when he did that, I didn't think about babies or moms or people in crisis or trauma or difficulty. I thought of the victory that was for our movement, which at that time was predominantly white, male, middle to upper middle class. And we had scored a big political victory. 
But I was also in a lot of closed door meetings where abortion was put on the table as a political device. And that eventually led me to, to look and think differently about what I was doing, about the people who were involved. And that led to a third conversion. And that was a conversion back to the Jesus I had first met with the help of the guy behind me, uh, the brave young German martyr, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who took me back to the things that really matter in the gospel, not the things I imagined to matter or the things I want to matter, but the things that really matter to Jesus and to God. And that would take me to a very different place. And that's where I hope I'll be picking up the conversation with my partners tonight. Wow, I'm sorry, I just got a little bit verklempt. <laughs> I literally um, was led to worship there for a minute. Um, I'm gonna introduce our next person who's gonna come in and share, um, Andrea Lucado. I met Andrea in the context of a very private retreat for women that really for me was one of the launching spaces um, for this conversation. She's a writer and an editor who wrote a breakthrough article for the Washington Post last year. And it was focused on the intersection of anti-abortion movement and the evangelical purity movement. And so we wanted to make sure that we had Andrea in this conversation because I think she brings a really important angle that most of us don't really consider. So Andrea, would you, would you come and introduce yourself and share a little bit? Yeah, thanks Lisa. Um, it was such a pleasure to meet Lisa this year. I also got to meet Elena this year and just learn a lot about things I didn't know about uh, various movements uh, within abortion and reproductive rights. Um, yeah, I come from an evangelical culture and background. Uh, was a child of the 90s, so I was raised in purity culture. Um, I've since 2008, I haven't been a single issue voter and have had no problem voting for the candidate that I just felt aligned most with my social values, which tends to be more liberal candidates. And so this hasn't been, um, it hasn't been a really hard road for me to, to vote a different way, but I did start to speculate in the last few years as I've deconstructed purity culture, I started to see parallels with the anti-abortion and, and pro-life movements and their focus on the female body and their focus on um, putting kind of blame and shame, it seems, on the female body instead of uh, instead of elsewhere in the purity culture movement. The way that it was taught to me was that it was my job as a woman to keep my brothers in Christ pure. It was my job. It was my responsibility if they weren't pure, and it was my responsibility to keep myself pure. So there was just kind of this focus on the female body being the thing that that leads uh, leads men to not be pure, having to keep myself pure. And so I, I used the work of a literary theorist, Rene Girard, who talks about the scapegoat theory and um, kind of found the female body to be at the center of, of that theory for evangelicals. And the scapegoat theory is, uh, it's really strong. It's something that communities rally around, something that goes back way back to the tribal times and it's a little much to talk about in a minute <laughs> um but i started to see parallels there and i wondered you know i wonder if some evangelicals 
are rallying around this thing as a way to keep them together as something that they feel like they need to stay strong, to stay powerful. Um, and if there is another way, if evangelicals, you know, were able to vote a different way and let go of this, this need or this fear around control and, and power. So that's how I kind of came into the conversation, though I feel like I'm still very much learning, um, very much, uh, yeah, still finding my way through all of this, but I definitely understand it as a very nuanced, a nuanced thing. And um, there's a story behind every woman who has to make a choice like this. And I don't pretend to know what's best for her is kind of where I've landed. Thanks, Andrew. Well, I, I wasn't expecting some Rene Girard to get dropped right there. Wow, I love me some Rene Girard. So that was great. Um, so the next person I'm going to get to bring into the circle and the conversation here is uh, Randall Balmer, who you're, you're a lot of things, uh, Randall, but you're a friend of Lisa's, you're a friend of mine, and you're real smart. And you've studied the history of evangelicalism. And abortion hasn't always been the most prominent thing that some people think of when they think of politics or they think of what does it mean to vote my faith or whatever. And, and there's a, a really intriguing history that you've helped unpack for many of us. So say a little bit more about that. And you're going to bring a whole lot of that, I think, to the conversation too. But thanks so much for being here, Randall. Oh, thanks, Shane. Happy to be here. Uh, yeah, I, I'm a historian. I'm also an evangelical, I'm also ordained uh, minister. Uh, but uh, I guess my real interest in this topic began long ago with my study of 19th century evangelicalism, looking at the kinds of issues that 19th century evangelicals were interested in, including public education, known as common schools at that time, because they recognized the importance of those on the lower rungs of society to become educated and be able to become more upwardly mobile, uh, women's rights, peace crusades in the 19th century. I've even run across a, an example of an evangelical crusade against or in favor of gun control in the 19th century. Uh, these sorts of issues were very important to evangelicals and evangelicals really shaped the moral conscience of the nation in the 19th century. Fast forward uh, to, the, to the late 20th century with the emergence of the religious right and uh, in the late 1970s. And uh, as I'm sure you all know, one of the most uh, cherished uh, myths of the religious right is that this is a movement that coalesced in opposition to abortion after the Roe v. Wade decision of 1973, January 1973. And I've spent probably far too many years <laughs> trying to, to uh, look into this issue. And I've concluded that this is just absolute fiction. Uh, the religious right did not get started in response to Roe v. Wade. In fact, in 1971, the Southern Baptist Convention, not exactly a redoubt of liberalism, passed a resolution calling for the legalization of abortion. When the abortion ruling was handed down on January 22nd, 1973, several prominent evangelicals, including W.A. Criswell of First Baptist Church in Dallas, applauded the, the Roe v. Wade ruling. Jerry Falwell, by his own admission, did not as preach his first anti-abortion sermon until February of 1978, more than five years after the Roe v. Wade ruling. So uh, there's a lot more to, to say here, but I, I want to keep it short. Uh, so I began looking at the real origins of the religious right, and it turns out that the real origins of the religious right are embedded in racism. The defense of tax-exempt status for racially segregated institutions, including Bob Jones University, but also including 
many so-called segregation academies that began to sprout up after the Brown decision of 1954, particularly as uh, public schools became desegregated in the 1960s and 1970s. That for me uh, casts a whole different light on the anti-abortion movement uh, to, to realize that the religious right didn't care about abortion. They considered it a Catholic issue throughout the 1970s. Uh, they didn't care about the issue until uh, very late in the 1970s, just in advance of the 1980 presidential election. And um, I, I just uh, completed another book on, or a book on this topic in which I argue that unaddressed racism has a tendency to fester. And for all of the, the, uh, uh, the, the adoption of, of abortion or, or anti-abortion as, uh, as an issue for the religious right, um, yeah, that's fine. And we can argue the, the fine points of that, of that policy and that position. But we have, still have to deal with the fact that this is a movement that was grounded in racism. This is where it came. And you can have a fancy building with all sorts of baubles and all sorts of filigree. But if the foundation is racism, those timbers are rotten. And the movement itself is rotten. And it has to be addressed. Wow. Amen. Amen. And honestly, um, Professor um, Balmer and Dr. Balmer, your work has been seminal in this area. So we are so, so happy that you said yes to being with us tonight. Um, thank you. Thank you, brother. Happy to be I here. I want to introduce Tatiana Torres to you now. She is an incredible um, advocate and uh, uh, someone who I met, but her, her roots come from the evangelical, the heart of the evangelical world, and in particular, the parachurch ministry world. I'm sure she has other roots, but we share that parachurch ministry experience together that was deeply shaping for us in the college, in the realm of college and high school and, and all the rest. And so um, Tatiana is currently the leader of the Latino um, outreach for the Faith 2020 campaign um, for, the, for this 2020 election season. But we've had our deepest conversations around this issue of abortion, and in particular, um, how the Latino church is actually responding to it. So I thought it was really important for us to have Tatiana be a part of this conversation. And we want to thank you so much, Tatiana, for saying yes. Um, please um, come forward and share. Thank you so much, Lisa, Shane. Thank you, everyone, uh, tonight. Um, this is a, a deeply moving and really real and deep conversation for me. Uh, I am the daughter of Colombian immigrants. I myself am an immigrant to the United States uh, from a very conservative Pentecostal slash Baptist family where my father um, is also a minister. And we, uh, like you, Shane, have done all the marches, grew up with looking at abortion as uh, killing babies and the utmost sin for a woman to do to her body, um, because as a as a woman being the temptation to men, Andrea, to your point. So I grew up with looking at this issue with with such a, a dark cloud around it, and and the worst evil uh, that could be around this word abortion. And growing up in in a church that uh, was all about purity and was all about scripture and what scripture says. And, and in the home that we were raised, 
um, abortion was just a topic that we would not talk about. Even given all that, um, that Hispanic immigrant mentality was the first thing that was able to break through my conversion of how I changed my point of view on, on abortion. And then later solidified that view in 2018. So it hasn't been too, too long. Um, I myself believe um, that I am no one to judge the decision of a woman. Uh, I am no one to think that I can make a decision for someone else based on my religious righteousness and my judgment, um, based on what I think is right, based on what I think is true, based on my own ego and my own uh, belief that I can too be God and take that position and take that seat. Um, and with humility and with a lot of understanding and recognizing my own weaknesses as a human, as a woman, um, the racial tensions that have risen over the past few years have solidified this even more. And for the Hispanic Evangelical Church, we are in a moment of decision. Uh, this year, 2020, is, is there is no coincidence with how the Hispanic Evangelical Church is transitioning from a church of conservative, very fundamental black and white to a church that understands the pain of refugees, of children in cages, which is something that we, at least in this generation, in my generation, had not seen. So the black and white of Democratic and Republican has done a lot when we see our own separated from families and the imposition and the pain that it has caused. Um, it is for my parents, it is for my grandparents. Um, so it is very interesting to see how for the Hispanic Evangelical Church, we are now looking at mercy and compassion more than our generation before, because we are now experiencing that racial inequality that we attributed only uh, to African-Americans and to their experience. And now our parallels and our paths are running very close, not the same, but close some of the pain and some of the infliction of that racial um, discrimination that are, we never thought we would experience as much um, or close to. So it's been uh, a very, um, a lot of reflection over the past few years, um, moments of a lot of tears and recognizing the opportunity, recognizing the past sins that uh, the Hispanic Evangelical Church has placed on, on thousands and thousands of women um, that have been cast out of the Hispanic conservative church that were told, if you don't have long hair, if you wear earrings, if you wear makeup, if you wear pants, you are condemned to hell. Um, and let's just start from the physical appearance and then we have the whole other conversation um, around decisions that women have to make. Um, I think we're in a moment of transition and I, and I am happy uh, to see that happening. Um, there's a lot of, of those in my generation that are more interested in uh, pro-life issues that we forget, uh, such as hunger and access to education, affordable housing and criminal justice reform uh, and food security um, than abortion. And I think that is the right direction where the Hispanic Evangelical Church is um, changing that new leaf and transitioning from one generation to another. I even dare say um, from Egypt into a different promised land for our, our churches and for our faith. Mm. Mm. Thank so, you. Thank you. Yeah. So we got just two more folks we're going to welcome into the circle. Thank you, Tatiana. And uh, and then just so y'all know that those of you that are tuning in, we're going to have a conversation together for about 20 or 25 minutes here. And then we're going to have a prayer. We're going to, we're going to send everybody out with some prayer to keep this conversation going. So we're hoping that this is a beginning 
you know, of a healthier conversation that can happen outside of just, this is not just a one-off event. We think we need a whole new spirit about how we talk with each other, right? And one of the people that has modeled that uh, is Jerusha Duford. And um, Jerusha, we, we connected, uh, we, Red Letter Christians was doing some revivals. <laughs> And I think that's when we first connected. And you're many things, but and I, I know you well enough to know that you don't mind being connected. In fact, you love being connected to your grandfather, uh, who was Billy Graham. And I don't know if you know this, Drusha, but your grandfather led my wife to the sweet Lord Jesus. So I am grateful I for that. that. And, you know, he said it would disturb me if there was a wedding between the religious fundamentalists and the political right. This is Billy Graham. The hard right has no interest in religion except to manipulate it. Now, isn't that something? And uh, I'm sure Thanksgiving dinners are interesting uh, with the extended Graham family, uh, but you have been an amazing voice. You've had tremendous courage, um, not just around the election, but because of your faith and your love for Jesus and your respect for your grandfather. So welcome for, thank you for bringing yourself here tonight. And I know you've got, you, you've been really busy. Uh, so you may have to hop off a little early, but thanks for being a part of this. Sure, Shane, thanks for having me. I appreciate you um, so much, your ad advocacy work that you do. And, um, you know, we've been able to work together few times over the last couple of years, but never really in person. And this is the new, um, this is the new in person. So um, I'm glad to be here. I'm honored to actually be on this panel with all of you all. I feel humbled to be included in this group. Um, the one thing that I'm hearing through everyone's stories that I love is just the journey and the progression of grace and understanding that it seems like the Lord has brought each of us through. Um, Rob, your story is similar to mine. Um, Elena, um, your comments that we can do better um, in these conversations. Um, you know, I don't know that I've ever been part of a productive conversation where I feel like all the participants are listening around this topic. Um, my journey really has similarities to a lot of yours. Um, I was raised obviously in a Christian home, um, not a fundamental Christian home. Um, I think that I actually had um, a lot of freedoms from my family to explore my own faith. And I'm super grateful for that. But I was um, a huge pro-life advocate, especially in my later high school, early college years. I don't know if some of y'all remember, um, I think they were called the life chains, where you would hold up a sign on the side of the road and just sign after sign after sign of saying um, abortion kills. And I participated in that. And probably the third year, um, I was given a sign that said, Jesus loves. And I instantly knew that's the sign that I wanted to hold, but I had a really hard time um, making sense of both of those messages being communicated at the same time. And um, that was when I feel like the shift in me started to happen along with just the understanding of um, God's grace and mercy over my life. And then wanting to extend that grace and mercy to others. I think that um, shift kind of all happened at the same time. Um, when I went to college, it was probably the first time that I was introduced to um, women that this issue had actually touched personally. And what grieved my heart the most was that when these women found out that I was a believer or part of the Graham family, um, they had a wall up instantly because they wanted nothing to do with me or my church because of the um, assumption of shame and judgment that they would feel. And I remember being so grieved by that and thinking that's not 
my Jesus. That's not how he would respond to you. But I can't say that that's not how you would be treated um, by large numbers of, you know, my faith. And so that grieved my heart and kind of took me on a journey of um, wanting to, you know, be an advocate actually for mothers who choose life. And um, I realized at that point in time in college that if I was going to be pro-life, that I was going to be uh, pro-foster care and I was going to be pro-adoption. And both of those things have been a large part of my family, did foster care for about eight years. Um, my third child was adopted through the system. Um, all the other children actually went home to their mothers because I wanted to advocate for them. You chose life and you're going through a rough patch. So I'm going to take care of your children while you do what you need to do. And then we're going to reunite them. Um, and so that was a really interesting way for me to come in on the other side of this issue. And it really changed my heart. And um, Tatiana, to what you said, I align with you perfectly about it is not my job to judge um, a woman's decision. My grandfather famously said, and golly, this has been a cornerstone of so much of my life, but he said, it's the spirit's job to convict. It's God's job to judge and it's my job to love. And that's absolutely um, what I hope to bring to this conversation or what I hope this conversation is about tonight. Thank you so much, Jerusha. Um, so one other thing that you and our next uh, conversation partner have in common is that you are a part of uh, th hundreds, probably thousands now, maybe t even tens of thousands, but there's lots of folks that signed on to a pro-life evangelicals that are supporting uh, Biden, Biden and Harris. And um, I thought it was really interesting because you were very clear about the pro-life part and the, the you know, a, a gentle critique of do we have a place here, you know, but also it was a, a, a support that, you know, there are things other than abortion that we're thinking about in, in light of our faith and our love for Jesus. And Ron Sider was a part of that. Ron has been a great friend, teacher of mine. Um, uh, just two things I will point to is one of is the early church on killing, which is a book that Ron put together that shows that the early church was having this conversation. Uh, eight uh, major leaders in the early church wrote about abortion in 11 different writings. And so it was a part of the conversation. And Ron's also helped with, um, this is not your newest book, Ron. I've got, I've got an old one that you signed a while back, but it's lovely. And it, it helps give this idea of a consistent life ethic. Um, one way of thinking that these, in, these different issues of life intersect and that we should see them as connected and so, Ron, you've, you've been thinking about this. We saved you for last. You're like our elder, aged wine, the beautiful wisdom. So thank you for staying up late and being with us, buddy. Thanks. Uh, good evening, friends. Um, when I started my um, teaching a long time ago, after grad school in 1968, I used to say in class that uh, the Bible didn't say when um, the fetus became um, uh, a human being, so abortion was fine even as a um, population control measure. Uh, and then I was jolted. Uh, I, I loved Mark Hatfield, um, Republican from Oregon, probably the most liberal mem member of the US Senate. Uh, and um, right after uh, Roe versus Wade, he wrote um, a major piece, uh, just strongly opposed to uh, that decision. And I said, what on earth is this? Uh, and I began to uh, rethink that issue and, and became uh, changed my mind Basically, um, in 1987, I, I wrote the book Completely Pro-Life, um, wanting to say that, um, yes, um, 
I'm concerned about abortion, but uh, it's not the only pro-life issue. Uh, and uh, I, I've been uh, at that kind of position um, uh, all of my life. Um, the, um, the most recent thing I've done is uh, what um, Shane uh, mentioned. Um, and uh, Jerusha, thank you, has been one of the key persons uh, with me on this. Um, Rich Mao and I um, organized a group of people uh, who on October the 2nd launched um, Pro-Life Evangelicals for Biden. Uh, it includes a number of, um, you know, quite uh, well-known um, evangelicals, Brenda Salter McNeil, uh, a longtime university person, Roberta Heston is uh, um, Eastern University president, World Vision Connected, uh, and um, uh, John Huffman, who was Nixon's pastor a long time ago and uh, never voted for a Democrat. Um, uh, and, uh, uh, and see, um, uh, Richard Foster, um, Celebration of Discipline, just to name a few of the people. Um, all of us saying that um, uh, pro-life uh, is a lot more than abortion uh, and it includes racism and uh, uh, poverty that kills um, and um, environmental, uh, especially global warming issues and so on. Uh, and we've said that on balance, we think that um, uh, evangelicals precisely uh, pro-life evangelicals on abortion. We, we say we don't agree with Mr. Biden on, uh, on that issue, but um, on balance, we think he's a much better candidate. Thank you so much, Ron and everyone. And um, I think that we, so let's just dive into the conversation now, shall we? <laughs> we, we are um, a, a very diverse group of people whose experiences come at this issue from many different angles, but we do hold a few things in common. And one of those things is that our lives have intersected in some way or some part of our life has intersected with that part of the origin story of abortion as a political wedge issue. So I wondered if, if a few of us could actually share, how does your story intersect with that? I, I wanna actually start off with with Dr. Balmer, because I, I happen to know, because he was the reader for my, for my thesis when I was in grad school at Columbia. Um, and at that time he wrote the book or put the book out, Thy Kingdom Come, that talks about how his life intersects um, with that origin story. So Randall, would you share a little bit more about that? And then also Rob Schenk, I'm, I'd also be very interested to hear from you as well. Uh, well, I, I, I'm not exactly sure where you're pointing me, but I'll, I'll, I'll start talking and you can redirect <laughs> if you wish. Uh, I, I first became uh, uh, interested in this issue actually when I was uh, invited to Washington in November of 1990 mm -hmm. and found myself in a small conference room with people like Ralph Reed, head of the uh, Christian Coalition, um, Paul Weirich, who's the architect of the religious right, Ed Dobson, who was one of Jerry Falwell's um, uh, acolytes at uh, Moral Majority, um, uh, Richard Vigory, uh, Carl F.H. Henry, who's kind of a who's who of the religious right. And I wasn't sure exactly at the time why I was in invited there, but it turned out that it was uh, quite a productive meeting because in the first session, uh, Paul Weirich is the person who, uh, who, who made this comment. He said, let's remember that this movement did not get started in opposition to abortion. 
And uh, he went on at some length about this. And at the uh, the break, right after that first session, I, I went up to him and I said, I want to make sure I understood you correctly about this. Uh, he said, absolutely not. What got this movement was going was the opposition to the Internal Revenue Service trying to rescind the tax-exempt status of racially segregated institutions. And that is what kind of put me on a trajectory to try to nail that down. And I think, you know, if I can say so immodestly, I think I've, I've pretty much made that case uh, fairly uh, persuasively. Uh, and it's only, and it's worth talking about how abortion did eventually come into the conversation. Yeah, yeah. Uh, abortion was a Catholic issue, considered a Catholic issue by evangelicals in the 1970s. And what happened is that in the midterm elections of 1978, Paul Weirich decided to go out and elect some rather improbable people to the U.S. Senate. And in four uh, elections, four Senate elections, uh, New Hampshire, Iowa, and then two, sa uh, two seats in Minnesota, one was for the unexpired term of Hubert Humphrey. Uh, the final weekend of that campaign, pro-lifers, Roman Catholics, leafleted church parking lots. And two days later in a an election with a very low turnout, the favored Democratic pro-choice candidates unexpectedly lost to pro-life Republicans. And I, I, I've, I've been to the archives actually out at the University of Wyoming, uh, Paul Weirich's archives. And you know when he comes to that, when the, when the papers come to that 1978 election, it's almost like the, the archives begin to sizzle because he realized he finally had the issue that would uh, motivate grassroots evangelicals. Now let's remember, people like Jerry Falwell were already mobilized because they were defending their own, I mean, he had his own segregation academy in Lynchburg, Virginia. Uh, he was already motivated, but Weirich was savvy enough to recognize that he needed an issue other than defense of racial segregation in order to mobilize grassroots evangelicals. And that's how he really stumbled on the issue of abortion. Uh, the other thing he told me at this meeting, and I'll, I'll be quiet here in a minute, is that he had been trying since the Goldwater campaign of 1964 mm -hmm. to get evangelicals interested in politics, to get them organized, because he recognized they were a huge political movement. And up until the mid 70s, evangelicals were not organized politically as, as Ron will be able to attest from the 1972 election. Um, and he said, I tried everything. I tried the abortion issue. I tried the school prayer issue. I tried opposition to the ERA. I tried the pornography issue. Nothing got them interested in politics until they began to mobilize to defend their tax exempt status in these racially segregated institutions. So again, Lisa, I'm not sure that's where you appointed me, but that's exactly. where I went anyway. <laughs> okay. That's exactly where I was going. And, and okay. I, thank you so much. And Rob Schenck, as a Catholic, as someone who, who came to this through the Catholic movement, I, I, I mean, I just recently had a conversation with, with girlfriends who were saying that that actually precedes the evangelical movement, but not a lot of us know a lot about that. And, and so how, how does your life intersect with that? Yeah, sure. Well, first of all, uh, Professor Balmer, uh, as I know you, uh, you remind me of many meetings that I sat in inside the United States Capitol, inside the Senate buildings, the House buildings, over a period of 25 plus years. And, you know, when I think about those meetings, I think, okay, that's the rooms where it happened. And I remember the meetings very well. I remember uh, when 
a, a pronouncement was made. Once we put abortion on the platform, you guys aren't going anywhere. That was the statement that was made. Where are you going to go? And that was locking in or essentially holding hostage the white American evangelical vote for conservatives, generally speaking, but for the GOP, for the Republican Party. And that became a strategic operation to keep that plank uh, in the platform and to foster a lot of fear and anger over it. In fact, I was in many meetings in Washington where I lived and headquartered uh, uh, from 1994 uh, until uh, 2015. And in those years, I can remember many, many times sitting with political strategists, with fundraisers, with PR and messaging firms, some of whom were being paid millions, millions of dollars, tens of millions of dollars. Some were flying in on their Gulfstream jets, uh, tooling in uh, in $600 a day uh, executive limousines, eating at the most expensive restaurants, and, and whining and dining us, evangelical leaders from all over the country. And in those conversations, I would hear uh, converse, uh, discussions like this, and I was a part of them. I'm I'm embarrassed. I'm 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 I regret being a part of those conversations, but I was there and I was uh, uh, cooperative with them. And they went something like this: If I can make your people angry, mad as hell. In fact, was I remember a phrase that was used more than once, uh, or uh, if I can make them afraid, you give me something that makes your people fearful, makes them afraid and angry as hell, and I'll generate tens of millions for you. Mm -hmm. And I will move voters. Uh, I'll get them to sign anything you want them to sign. Mm -hmm. So suddenly attached to this question, was uh, all kinds of fear-mongering, uh, fictional scenarios, uh, including descriptions of what happens in an abortion and right. why women seek abortion. And again, I'm embarrassed to tell you that I sat in some of those meetings and I, by then I was using the phrase, you know, abortion is murder routinely in my preaching, my speaking, the interviews I gave to media uh, in my general conversation, private and public. And yet at the same time, when I looked at the numbers that somebody alluded to earlier, I can't remember, 25% of American women, I was nagged by a question. Are 25% of American women guilty of murder? They are murderers? Mm -hmm. It doesn't comport with reason. It's not a reasonable conclusion. And after all, it's God who invites us to reason together. Come, let us reason together, says the Lord. And sometimes I would broach those kinds of questions in our discussions and 
and strategy meetings. And I remember being told uh, in one meeting, uh, that's not going to help us. Uh, we're not raising those kinds of questions. We're not asking those kinds of questions. That's not going to help our cause. So there came a time for me where I realized the political cause, the political objective, the political victories were far more important than any of the people involved in the equation or the crisis of abortion. But I watched it with my own eyes. It's not conjecture. I watched it happen. I'm sorry to say I was a part of it. Thank you so much for that confession, actually. It's really what it was. Thank you for that. That's heavy. I want to invite in Jerusha and actually also Andrea, because I think that you guys have intersection that's very, um, very thick because your parents are leaders within the evangelical movement and, and have been. And so Jerusha in particular, I want to start with you, since I know that actually I think you're probably going to have to have to jet at some point. So we want to make sure we get your voice in. Um, I want to ask how, two things for you. How did your your life intersect with this, this birthing moment of the, of, the evangel of the wedge issue of abortion, but also did you see it intersect with the issue of race? Were you witness to that? You know, Lisa, um, first I just wanna say, um, Rob, thank you for sharing what you did. I think that um, you gave language to a lot of um, what I've been trying to explain that I assume is happening in Washington around this issue. And um, I also, uh, I hear your, um, your sorrowful spirit over um, your past participation and every one of us on this panel has stories similar. And um, you, I don't want you to carry that any longer. Um, but I also, um, to answer your questions, Lisa, you know, as far as the race issue, I want to say that I don't, I am now witness to it. No, I don't believe I was witness to it um, younger. You know, I had a, um, uh, one of my best friends actually used to work for a um, pro-life foundation for a really long time. He um, left it maybe five years ago and he was, um, he's given me lots of information about the way that this intersects um, races. Um, you know, I think that the statistics of African-American women who were um, having abortions over white women who were having abortions was staggering. However, the loudest voices um, advocating for life was not coming from the African-American community. And so um, he definitely saw a disparity there between the two and it grieved his heart. And um, I think that for me, I, another statistic he told me, which really shocked me at the time was that um, he said, and don't quote me or him on this because the numbers aren't specific, but it was over 60% of women who were having abortions claimed that they were Republicans active in a local church. And what that did to me was it made me think that this might also be um, a problem within the church. In other words, if we were um, more about grace and more about love and more about forgiveness and less about shame, um, maybe women would not feel as though this was one of their only options. They would come to the church more like a hospital 
then they would come to the church as, you know, they, they would run to the church when they're in these positions, as opposed to running to a clinic because they feel like that's their only option to keep their standing within the church. And so I want to open up that avenue that um, I think the church has um, a lot of fault here as to where we are. And I think that um, we can do better. And I don't know if that answered your question, but it's something I wanted to share before I wow. do have to jet. Woo. Right, yeah. Glory. Yeah, Glory. And, and it actually is perfect for Andrea to, to follow up on because the bulk of her work has been asking why, why is that? So Andrea, go for it, girl. This is your moment. Like, tell us why. <laughs> yeah, this is perfect. I mean, purity culture, you know, tells women the worst sin you can commit is sex outside of marriage. If you have evidence that you have done that, it will drive you to have an abortion or will drive you to um, hide in shame. And I think that we have to ask ourselves, why has this become the greatest sin? Why has this become the center of conversation in youth groups and, and what we teach. And I think that it's, um, it is what has caused me to think, you know, there's something rotten in the state of evangelical political affiliations with, with being pro-life. It just seems like there's something kind of under the surface that has to do with how we talk about and treat and think about the female body, which is often as an object, which is often as a temptation, which is not fully human. And Lisa, I believe you talked about, you know, fully humanizing this issue. And I feel like if we could fully humanize women, this conversation would be completely different. Um, it'd be a lot less about the woman in her body. We'd be talking more about men and why men aren't wearing condoms. Sorry if that's a little bit too crass to say. Um, <laughs> but it does seem like to be a big thing that we're not talking about. Um, when men talk about abortion, I, you know, I've I was on a podcast recently with um, a friend and writer named Debbie, and you know she talked about just how it rubbed her the wrong way when men would talk about abortion because it was talking about something so that seemed so apart from them. And I thought, you know, I would listen to a man talk about abortion if he was talking about you know men not using um, protection and and not doing what their part of all of this. And so that that's what made me really suspicious that there's this whole conversation we're not having. It's just about the woman, it's just about her body. And this is this is connected, I think, with purity culture and just how women are talked about and treated in the church. And I think, so I wanna bring this also, also bring in Elena and Tatiana. I think you'll actually have a lot to say to this. And, and, and Andrea also, I wanna come back to what you just said, because when we had our conversation on, on the Freedom Road podcast, um, one of the things that was blew, literally blew my mind and still today goes is, the reality that there is an absolute parallel between the scapegoating of women and the scapegoating of people of color within white evangelicalism. And in particular within the white nationalist, white supremacist movement that is within, that really it's held in the heart of evangelicalism. That, that's, that's the group that holds it the tightest. So I wonder if, um, any of the three of you, Elena, Tatiana, or Andrea, would like to speak to that. What's, what's that parallel? Well, Lisa, if, if women of color had more access to healthcare, and if women of color had more access and steps out of poverty, um, and more education, and if the church, as you said, was a hospital and not a court where people are condemned left and right, 
it'd be a lot easier for folks to understand that it's not about shame, it's about grace, it's about education, it's about empowerment. Hello. Yes. So that's that's the, the important part. Women are seen as, at least I can speak from in my culture, um, you know, we don't have a voice. The man is the head of the home, the man speaks for the woman. Um, and many women in just in traditional settings in terms of like preaching and leading a church in the Hispanic culture, that is still a, a no-no um, and is still not allowed in the church. So when we talk about race and, and abortion, um, if women were giving access to opportunities and if, the, and if that were that, then there would be a whole different conversation. If people of color, period, had access to some of this conversation, it would, it would be game over. But I think that with the white supremacist movement and the conversation of suppression on people of color, this is, and then you tie faith into that narrative. Mm -hmm. um, there is no voice, there is no opportunity, there is no access, access is cut. Access is given when it's, want, when it's, it's when people want to give it, exactly, when it's beneficial, when you need a vote, when you need, diversity, when you need inclusion, when you need uh, to fill a racial equity quota still in the church. And we forget, uh, we forget that as the body of Christ, as the bride, uh, as, as, as the unifying faith that we all profess to have, we have to keep this in mind when speaking of access, speaking of intersection of abortion. Sometimes some of these women don't have the option there is no option. You know, Drusha mentioned foster care and adoption. That is, that is, it's, it's more like, well, let's see what we can do to take the demon out of you to make sure that you're not, because that was a spirit that tempted you. I mean, it is, it's bizarre and it's beyond me to sometimes try to comprehend how we demonized this entire conversation. And I think also just going along with that, that I mean, think about, I, I had recently had like a big aha moment and I'll, I'll share my aha moment and then I'll invite Elena in as well. Um, my aha moment was that in the 1970s, you, along with the Bob Jones University fight that was going on to try to maintain the purity of white space and that everybody rallied around, at the exact same time, you had Roe v. Wade and the sexual revolution and the women's empowerment movement. So, and, and we had just passed the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act. So white men were feeling like, oh my God, like what's gonna happen to us? So both all of these movements, all of these basically people who literally, literally had been suppressed up to that point by law were now being set free by law. And so, and the Supreme Court was really at the heart of it. It was Brown v. Board that really started to unleash all of it, just, you know? So for me, the, the, the I don't know, I, I, when, I was, when I read Randall Balmer's book a while back, Thy Kingdom Come, and then since then I've been thinking about it, it just struck me that in that moment in the late 1970s and early 1980s, that there was a moment where white nationalists, literally people who thought that the nation should be run by white people, hid under the cloak of evangelicalism and said, we're going to get our country back and we're going to use white evangelicals to do it. Elena, do you have anything you want to say? I see you're nodding. Oh, yes. I mean, I'm so glad we're naming all of this and that we've unpacked um, th these roots 
these white supremacist roots, <laughs> white Christian supremacist roots, um, this abortion conversation, because uh, that doesn't get discussed enough. And, um, and I think we've got a name that we've been played. We have been hoodwinked that this is about, you know, life and well-being when in the end, it really is about control. <laughs> it is about power, who has it, who wields it, um, whose voices we listen to, whose stories are told. And for too long, these conversations have been led by way too many white men, women, white men. Uh, the, our laws are made all in the structure of white supremacy and to prop up white Christian supremacy. Mm -hmm. And we disregard all the faithful voices of color from our black indigenous uh, and sisters and siblings who have wrestled with their faith, who are making these um, life-giving decisions about their reproductive futures. And they're doing it in the most compassionate way that they know how given all of the barriers that are imposed in our lives. Like no one just, you know, this isn't just a thought conversation for us. You know, like people have pregnancies within our social spheres in which there are just a myriad of barriers. And we have to talk about abortion and reproduction and birth control in that context. Mm -hmm. Name that, you know, like I, I subscribe to a reproductive justice lens in this in that I value people's autonomy and their free will and their moral agency as image bearers to then be able to have the right to have a child, the right to not have a child, and the right to parent and have families in a safe and healthy environment without sanctioned violence or government interference. Mm. And so when we expand this conversation beyond just abortion, because it Becomes, becomes such a wedge issue and becomes so polarized and dehumanizing, then we have to talk about what it means to have life in abundance and all that for the children, 565 children detained right now and are separated from their families at the border. We have to talk about how Latinx women are coming to this country and are seeking safety and shelter and yet, you know, to raise their families and yet are forced to be sterilized. We have to talk about how people are not able to raise their families in a safe community when they have to fear police brutality. Mm -hmm. that their water will be filled with lead, that they will have miscarriages or that they'll even be exposed to tear gas and again, exposed to miscarriages. And so reproductive oppression is this big, wide conversation that is just goes beyond just abortion in itself. And if we're going to talk about it in a real way, we have to reclaim that narrative and say that, you know, the stories are richer and they're fuller and they're led by black and brown voices who have a lot to say about <laughs> what it means to truly be free, to have dignity and to be offered life and and I'm so glad that we're beginning, <laughs> we're having this conversation now, but it needs to be even more so, especially in our faith communities and evangelical circles. So I wanna, I wanna um, bring us to a semi-close, because so this is really, it feels like it's a start of a conversation. So that good, really yeah. isn't, You know, it's not, it's not at all gonna get all the things. Um, and I, but I'm aware that 
we got, we have, we have schedules. <laughs> People have stuff they have to do. Um, I want to ask the faith question and we'll, we'll, we'll land there. How does your faith impact where you stand today? Whoever would like to, actually, I'd like to call first on Ron Sider because Ron, you wrote that book on the consistent ethic of life and and also, I, I mean, I think I've seen you have a transition even over the last decade. Um, so I wonder, I wonder if you could share with us how you're thinking about this now, and especially in, in light of, the, you know, you're also rich Christians in the age of hunger, and we know that the number one cause of, of abortion is poverty. And Republicans tend to vote against things that get people out of poverty. So how are you working with this, you know, theologically? Well, I've tried uh, all my life to, you know, start my political thinking with um, uh, looking at the scriptures and and seeing what they tell me about justice and the nature of persons and God's concern for the poor uh, and and family and so on. And um, sometimes that ends me up in a more conservative position politically, and sometimes um, uh, a more um, progressive uh, position. Um, I don't even know exactly what law I would write if I were president and could just mm -hmm. decide what the what the law would be. Mm -hmm. uh, but um, I um, uh, find it disappointing. Uh, uh, you know, I organized um, pro-life evangelicals for, for Biden, so I want people to vote that way. But I'm disappointed that uh, the uh, Democrats uh, don't reckon with the fact that uh, uh, at least 50% of the American people in Gallup poll after Gallup poll um, uh, want some restrictions. Uh, and if we could have more dialogue and um, meet in the middle, um, it seems to me that would um, um, be desirable. But in terms of, um, I guess one more thing, and that is, I'm sure um, uh, Randall Bomber's right about uh, how it emerged and how the religious right emerged. I think it's true today that there are some evangelicals and some Catholics that really do deeply care um, about abortion. And uh, mm -hmm. I wanna respect that as I try to say, hey, they should vote for Biden at this point in time. Wow, that's, and that is, I think it's important to say, and it may not have been said strong enough, that as we explore the origin story of this wedge issue, it doesn't discount the genuine concern that reasonable people can have on life, on the question of life when it begins and the sacredness of children, of, of babies of life. Um, the reason we bring that up is because we need to understand how politics has guided our thinking on our voting, right? It's not right or wrong, it's strategy. What's the strategy and how are we being guided in that way? So thank you so much for that reminder, Ron. Um, would anyone else like to speak? I realize that we probably have to start wrapping up pretty soon. We have a burning thought on the faith question. Can I offer something yeah. here just briefly? And, and again, uh, it comes from my, these days, my uh, posthumous mentor, uh, dear Dietrich, behind me here. 
who said Jesus was consummately the man for others, the one for others, for the other. And I think for me, in my third conversion, I had to face what was happening inside my wing of evangelicalism and the pro-life movement more specifically, mm-hmm. where we were forgetting the other. We were forgetting that this whole question was about the other, mm-hmm. about the child, about the mother, about uh, the people that surrounded them or had abandoned them in many cases. Mm-hmm. So it, it's the dehumanization, the depersonalization of all of this that's really at the heart of the question. Because for me, the worst people you can insert into this equation are politicians, judges, law enforcement. And this is why I've shifted my position on Roe v. Wade, only because what Roe v. Wade and, and, and the enterprise that was built around it did was it gave an invitation to introduce all of those players who will use the crisis of abortion for their own advantage. And in doing that, they dehumanize every person involved, including the unborn child. So for me, this isn't really a question about whether the unborn child is is sacred, but whether all the other persons involved are equally sacred. So when you turn the unborn child into what we used to call a cause platform for a fundraising letter, for a convening, uh, for voter mobilization, it's not really about the personhood of that child. It's about their utility, Mm -hmm. their usefulness to us, which is depersonalizing that unborn child. So for me, that's consummately a question of faith and the definition of the gospel, which is all about the other. Wow. Thank you. That seems like a good place to put the dot, 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 doesn't it, Lisa? We, we knew, you know, we, for all y'all listening in, there's hundreds of folks uh, listening in and, and some of you that'll view this afterwards. And we told our conversation partners we would do about an hour. And then, you know, into this, we said, we're going to need to go at least 75 minutes because it's so rich and so powerful. We could probably go another hour, but we all got things to do. And it's more than, you know, we're not going to solve this in one night. But what we do want to, sorry, I'm getting a little choked up over here. I think what we did really want to do is to center women's voices, to have women of color, to have men, white men in conversation together. And one thing that's really clear is you can be really smart and still be mean. You can still hurt other people, even if you've got great ideas and if you've thought about this a lot. So thank you for listening. We're going to do a prayer in closing, but I wanted to just say that we didn't really, you know, this, uh, this is a book I've been reading with my friends, Killing the Black Body by Dorothy Roberts, that talks about race and the the backdrop of manipulating black bodies uh, through history and how that intersects with this. So there's so much more reading that we need to do and the conversations that we need to have, but we're, we're going to stop for tonight and uh, close in prayer. And please do, do some research on this. When I started reading about it, I was stunned to see that like since Roe versus Wade, abortions have dropped 
every year steadily, regardless of whether it's a Republican or Democratic president. So don't put too much into this presidential race like this when it comes to abortion. Let's think about life in the broad sense. So Lisa, thank you for the opportunity to co-host this together. Thank uh, each of you. I know we could listen to each of you just share more. I feel the spirit moving up in here. I got chill bumps on my arms. So anyway, I'm gonna stop. And uh, we're gonna do a, a little call and response. It was Lisa's idea that as we think of Mary and even as she uh, met Elizabeth and John the Baptist, you know, jumped in the womb, you know, we, we kind of have this Magnificat of Mary that uh, we wanted to do together. And then we're gonna pray all of you out with the fruits of the spirit, because we need that in our world right now. We need that in our nation right now. So we're gonna pray those as a blessing. I'll say one of the fruits of the spirit and you can repeat it. Even if you're watching this, say it out loud uh, and, and pray those fruits of the spirit would be in us and that they would be in the world and in the conversations that we have that follow up. So Lisa, why don't you uh, start us out with the Magnificat? This is Mary's, uh, Mary's prayer and song from the book of Luke. Okay. And all those who have already, we've already talked about following me, you follow me, make sure you're unmuted too. <laughs> okay. My soul glorifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, God my Savior. The Lord looks on me, a lowly servant. Henceforth, all ages will call me blessed. The Almighty works marvels for me. Holy is God's name. God's mercy is from age to age. On those who are faithful. God puts forth an arm in strength and scatters the proud hearted. Cast the mighty from their thrones and raises the lowly. God fills the hungry with good things and sends the rich away empty. Protecting Israel, God's servant. Remember mercy. The mercy promise to our ancestors, to Abraham, Sarah, and their, and their children forever. forever. So as we go forth tonight from this conversation, we pray that the fruit of the Spirit would be in us. Let's say them together. Love. Love. Joy. Joy. Peace. Peace. Patience. Patience. Kindness, kindness, goodness, goodness, faithfulness, faithfulness, gentleness, gentleness, self-control, self-control. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Thank you all for a holy conversation. Thank you all out there for listening in on it. God bless. Thank you for listening to part one of a two-part town hall series on abortion. Stay tuned for part two on this important conversation. Thank you for listening. And we are here tonight for a sacred conversation on abortion and reproductive rights. We, we started this conversation 
um, just before election 2020. Um, and we're coming back around for, for round two because we went we went long in that first conversation. And we went long because there was so much to talk about. And we realized when we came out of that conversation that, uh, you know, we just don't, we don't talk about this. And yet it has so much power in our community. And by our community, what I mean is the community of the body of Christ in the church. Um, different streams of the church feel different ways, think different ways about it. Um, some feel more strongly than others, but there is no doubt about it. The issue of abortion has been used as a wedge that has wedged our nation apart. And in, in many uh, women's instances, it's also wedged women from their own families, from their own bodies, from their own churches. Um, and so it is time, it is time for us as the church um, to dive into this conversation. And by way of introduction, my name again is Lisa Sharon Harper. You see it on the screen there. I am the president and founder of Freedom Road LLC. We're a consulting group that we create experiences and uh, that bring people together for common understanding common commitments and leads to common action. And we are doing this in partnership today um, in strong partnership with RLC, Red Letter Christians. Um, and so Red Letter Christians is an incredible network of Christians who, who live according to the red letters of the Bible. I'm gonna let Shane talk a little bit more about that, but I wanna say thank you all for showing up for this conversation today. There's been a buzz about it since we announced it. And let's just, oh, and before we begin, I want to do something that will begin to set aside this space as sacred space. I wanna light a candle. Okay, so this is our sacred conversation on abortion and reproductive rights, because we recognize that this conversation has has guided the path of the church for at least the last 35 years in the public square and has impacted our entire nation and public policies not only having to do with abortion but also public policies having to do with race economics international relations and all the rest because abortion has guided our choices for who comes into public office. So this sacred conversation begins now. Thanks, Lisa. And it's always a, a gift and an honor to team up with Freedom Road with Lisa. We're, we've been friends for a long time. So we've built a lot of trust for conversations like this. And the other people that you're gonna hear from, uh, Elena Ramsey, Tatiana Torres, Andrea Lakato. Rob Shank, Elizabeth Krauss are all friends. We don't, we may not agree on everything, but we respect each other. And we want to model tonight what a healthier conversation can look like. And this is one of those things that, boy, I mean, uh, there's folks on one side that talk about the unborn almost like it's uh, a third appendage. You know, it's just an extension of the woman's body and like an, an arm or something. It's her right, her body. And there's other folks that talk about it like this is cold-blooded murder. I mean, I, I literally heard someone saying that abortion uh, doctors should face the death penalty, uh, which is 
another, there's a lot of problems with that, right? But, but for me, a lot of what I'm bringing to this conversation is a, a deep commitment to life and that every person is made in the image of God. And that's what, uh, you know, as, as we talk about this tonight, um, this is a second conversation. So we had one conversation, uh, everyone except for Elizabeth. So you're going to meet Elizabeth in just a second. But we had a few folks that aren't, aren't on here tonight. One was Jerusha Duford, who is the granddaughter of Billy Graham that shared about her story. So if you haven't seen the first one, you should watch that. But we didn't want this to feel like a sequel, right? This is a unique, you know, special conversation tonight. Uh, two other people that were on that first conversation were was Randall Balmer, who's done a lot of work historically to help us understand how abortion became one of the forefront issues for a lot of evangelical Christians when it's something that Jesus didn't mention. It's something that, you know, existed in the time of scripture, but there's not a lot of scripture that informs us on this. And so it, that's part of why this is difficult. And then the other person was Ron Sider, who this is a book he wrote, um, The Early Church on Killing. And he just has the words of the early Christians. And they did talk about abortion, um, like eight different uh, Christians in the early church in like 11 different writings talked about abortion. Um, so it's something that we can, we're working through, but it's also one of those things that as I've, you know, thought about this, I think what's, what's important is that we can learn a lot from books. And I've, I've really, I read this with a bunch of my mostly dude friends. We said, we need to listen to black women in particular because of the way their bodies have been manipulated. And when it comes to reproduction, we've, forced African-American women to have babies when we wanted them to. Um, during times of slavery, we've manipulated bodies to say that they're forced to be, uh, 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 to take away their reproduction at times. So this was an important book. But tonight is also about, there's stuff that you can't learn from books that we hear from each other. And every person tonight is bringing themselves, their stories, um, to us. And I, I have to tell you, Lisa, after that first conversation, we had like 10,000 people listen in, right? And mm. so many people said, thank you for just creating a space. That's right. And I, I didn't realize it. It's almost one in four women that have been directly impacted by this, right? One, one mm -hmm. in four women that by the age of 45 has had an abortion. And I had folks that wrote me that have said I was a, a survivor of rape, and, you know, had someone else that said, you know, I've had an abortion later in my pregnancy because of medical conditions and other someone else that said, I chose to have an abortion and I have a certain type of shame and guilt because I'm not one of those stories of, you know, a rape survivor. I just, and, and, and then what really impacted me was for my mom told me that she had had an abortion mm -hmm. and I talked to her again tonight about it. And I asked her if it was, and she said she wanted me to share because she wants this not to be something that is just a, a like shadow of shame over us, right? Mm -hmm. So for 45 years, you know, I had no idea about my own mom. So that's that's the the context of this conversation, you all. And we we need to create spaces like this. And we ask you to have a lot of grace, to to have an open heart as you listen tonight and so the first voice we're going to hear from is, is uh, Elizabeth. Um, and uh, Elizabeth, um, I've heard all kinds of great stuff about, and she does all kinds of other things, but particularly around this issue has just mm -hmm. been a champion in creating a better conversation, but also 
creating a new openness of compassion and generosity on this issue. So welcome, Elizabeth. We're so glad you could be here. Thank you so much. I feel so honored to be included with such a wonderful group of people. Um, it's such an important conversation. And I really entered uh, this conversation, you know, a little over a decade ago when I entered it as a young, married, conservative academic just beginning her career and found myself pregnant with, you know, my our first what turned out to be twins so our first children. Um, and I entered that pregnancy with a really sincere belief that all life was precious and created by God and deserved to be honored and preserved at all costs. And I really couldn't imagine a scenario where that belief would flip. Um, but little did I know that my whole life would be a scenario where that, where that situation would flip. Um, I found out about well into my second trimester that my twins were not doing well. And um, within a matter of weeks, one of my sons had passed away and the other was struggling significantly. And um, within even a few more weeks after that, I found out that I was going septic from carrying a child who was not living and that there was no chance for my living son um, to survive outside of my body, just given the complications that he was facing. And I remember leaving the University of Washington Medical Center. I was living and teaching in Seattle at the time um, and crossing the 520 bridge with my then husband just shocked because all of a sudden I was faced with a scenario that I could never have imagined and a choice that I didn't think I would ever um, consider, which was the choice to either carry my pregnancy further at my own risk or end my pregnancy. Um, and it turned out to be that with a lot of uh, talking with my then husband, I decided to terminate my pregnancy and to let my son pass. Because in that moment, as strange as it sounded, the most pro-life thing I could do was to allow my son to pass with dignity and with grace and to preserve my own life. Um, but the sh you know, I was teaching within Christian academics. That was not something we did. That's not something that's talked about. And so I, for years and years, truthfully lied about what happened and called the situation a stillbirth when the reality is that it was a late term abortion. Um, and I just kind of kept my secret nice and hidden because I wasn't really willing to face the backlash that could come with from the church or could come from um, fellow colleagues, etc. And I just thought I would just move forward with my life. I went on to have my my daughter, Sophia. Um, and about two years after having her, I landed back in the same position once again with my son, Malcolm, where at about 20 weeks, um, I contracted pneumonia, coughed so hard that my water broke and I ended up with a significant infection that threatened my life and that made it impossible for him to continue to grow. And so twice in my life, within five years, I faced a situation where my choice was to preserve my life or to preserve the life of a baby who couldn't live. And I really, really wrestled with that. I ultimately decided to terminate that pregnancy as well and to say goodbye to my son in as dignified a way as I could. Um, and I decided not to 
hide this situation any further because I recognized that I was one of hundreds of thousands of millions of women who faced abortion scenarios for a wide range of reasons and lived with stigma and shame and confusion about it. And yet uh, we don't really know what to do because as a researcher, we recognize how to, help, how to help people by listening to stories and collecting stories and as many stories as we can so that we can compare and contrast and collect data about what's similar and what's different and how can we respond. But the simple reality is that abortion maintains such a stigma within our culture and our society and specifically within the church that women just aren't in a position to be able to speak about it, which means we aren't in a position to collect data and to understand how to respond in grace and in wisdom and in support to these women. And so I began working on that. I started publishing a bit about my experience. Um, I began telling my story and often it was met with, with um, shock and surprise. How could that be an abortion? Well, when I'm talking about abortion, that's not really what I mean. I don't mean a situation like yours. Um, and it was met with, you know, and a completely other, other belief, which was that I had been a cold-blooded murderer and that truly a good mother would have sacrificed her life to save her babies. And so I've wrestled with that back and forth for a really long time and yet come to a place in my own space where I recognize that, you know, God knows how scary it is to be us and gives a lot of grace and compassion because life, you know, where I once believed this issue may have been very black and white, that really I found God more in gray spaces, in the spaces that weren't navigable easily. And so I'm really happy to be part of this conversation now as someone who has made these choices multiple times, as someone who looks at my two daughters and realizes they would not be here without access to reproductive health care, as someone who recognizes that I had that access largely because I am a privileged white woman and that that access is not available in the same way and grace and spaces to women of color. And that I wanna now take my experience and help to center a conversation around this as a nuanced issue. And even, actually I almost even hate that word. I'm not sure it's an issue. This is healthcare and people. And if we could start speaking about abortion as being about women and not about an issue, a political issue or a tally on a voting box. I think that shifts our narrative a little bit. So I'm really, really happy to be here. Thank you. I now work, I run a foundation that works to make um, pregnancy resources more available, especially to low-income women. I'm a teacher here at a local university and I write and publish a little bit, but I'm really happy now to be part of this conversation as just someone who has lived through it and has had to learn to put words and thoughts around my experience there. Mm. Wow. Let's, let's, just, let's just sit for a minute. Thank you, Elizabeth. Mm -hmm. Thank you for sharing mm -hmm. your story and yourself with us. Mm -hmm. I don't wanna to move too quickly out of that. So we'll just, thank you. Yeah, it's a complicated life. It's complicated grief. Um, it's complicated to hear women who have abortions labeled as murderers because 
there is so much nuance and complication to that. And so I'm really happy and grateful for space that allows for choice and grief to mix together in a really strange way. Mm -hmm. So thank you for allowing me to share their lives. Thank you. Well, a lot of our converse, you're gonna hear more from Elizabeth. A lot of this tonight is gonna to be a conversation together. Um, and you can start putting your questions in uh, those of you that are watching live on the Facebook pages, uh, at Red Letter Christians, and I think at Freedom Road too, you can put questions and we're doing our best to look at some of those in the feed. We'll, we'll see if we can get to some of them. But the first thing that we wanted to do coming out of Elizabeth's story is to name a few of the things that we know. We're gonna also, Lisa's gonna lead us in some time of naming the things that we, you know, are gray areas. But first to just put all the cards out on the table, uh, we're going to do a little round robin of because uh, because we, we need to we need to know name some of the things that are not they're not gray areas right um, like for instance um, when we think of Roe versus Wade this is the anniversary of Roe versus Wade in uh, 1973 that decision we kind of look at this landmark and then it's almost like that opened the door just to abortions going wild in our country. But what we know is that over the last 40 years that abortions have dropped steadily um, under Republican and Democrat presidents. Um, and so that's one of the things that we, we know, right? We also um, know that the number one reason uh, that's cited for having an abortion um, is economics, is, is the, the, the viability of being able to support the child. So things like health care and child care, if we really care about reducing the number of abortions, those are things that we should be talking about together, right? And the, the other one is that, you know, I remember when Donald Trump said these, this language of late-term pregnancies, right? Like that there was one point where Donald Trump said that sometimes a baby's born, you wrap it in a towel and the mom and the doctor decide whether or not they're going to kill it. Like insane, right? Like that, that does, that's murder, right? That doesn't happen. And I mean, it, it, Elizabeth, it's about like 1.3%, I think mm -hmm. of the abortions that happen yeah. uh, later in the pregnancy. And, and yeah, situations like mine are very rare, but they're very real. And even being very rare is tens of thousands of women. And yeah. um, I also, you know, yeah, there's a lot of reasons that women have abortions and a lot of them are really, they're all valid in their own way. It's just, they're not heard very well. So for the other folks, we've actually not called these panelists. We've called them friends and conversation partners, but I want to invite, um, you know, others of you that if you want to name some of those things that we, we can confidently say this is true, you know, uh, that might be helpful because as people say, you're subject to your own opinions, but not your own facts. So let's let's lay some of those out there. Anyone want to add another one that you think is kind of often misunderstood in the conversation? Well, Sheen, I'll, I'll actually just jump in just to say that I think, I mean, while you said that the abortion rates have been dropping for the last 40 years, and they have, it actually hasn't been a steady, like just straight decline as it usually, as it rarely is. But one thing that we can see very clearly is there is a there's a clear relationship between when funds are poured into anti-poverty programs, abortion rates drop. When funds are taken from poverty programs, abortion rates have actually risen or stayed steady, but they have not dropped. 
And so when you look at, you said that this happens under both president and democratic presidents. Um, I, would, I would challenge that actually. I would say that when you look at the numbers, you can actually see that it, and, and except for actually, except for the last four years um, under democratic presidents, that's actually where we've seen the greatest drops in abortion because they focus on stopping and ending poverty. Um, and under Bush, it held steady. Under Bush too, it went up a little bit. Under Reagan, it skyrocketed. Great. So, other others of you want to chime in on on the things that we, you know, that that we need to make sure that we're clear on as far as the the data and the facts and just our, our statistics, Elena. Hey, hey everyone. I'm Elena Ramsey, she, her pronouns. And just by way of introduction, I am currently the interim executive director of Red Letter Christians. Um, but in my full-time work, I actually run a religious pro-choice organization in Ohio. So I hear many, many stories like Elizabeth's. I get to work on the front lines of folks um, who are needing abortion access and um, you know, I work directly with clinics. And so it's just really refreshing to be able to talk about this um, in the context of people's lived realities that, oh, yeah, yeah, people have and want and need abortions and it's for a variety of reasons. And that, again, they are all valid. I also wanna to point to, you know, when Elizabeth was talking about research, um, great work by Diane Foster Green called the Turnaway Study, mm -hmm. um, which, basically uh, tracked um, those who've had abortions for the last 10 years out of 20 states, came to the conclusion that um, those who were turned away from abortion access because um, gestational limits, like states like mine, like Ohio, um, does not allow abortion beyond 20 weeks. Whereas again, the federal um, viability standard allows up to 24 weeks. Um, for, for states that have a much you know, um, decreased gestational limit, and for folks who can't access, again, abortion, like it's great, we're celebrating Road today, but it's not much of a right without access. And so for people who can't afford it, for people who can't access it because our clinics are being shut down left and right, who have to go to another state. I know people, we fly, we fly them to Colorado if they can't get an abortion at 20 weeks here in Ohio. Then they have to take time off of work. They have to, you know, like find childcare. But anyways, this study is called the Turnaway Study because it has shown that those who were turned away from abortion, who wanted an abortion, but couldn't access one, um, went on to have fulfilling lives, but also struggled much more than those who were then able to access abortion, able to raise the children that they currently have, able to finish school. Um, and it's just a really profound study because one, and it also shows that abortion doesn't hurt people. Yes, there's grief. You know, like we're complicated people, there's grief, there's all of that can be a part of your abortion experience. But at the end of the study, out of those, um, gosh, a thousand women over 10 states over 20 years, majority of them did not regret their abortion. Mm. Wow. Looking at hard facts, I think that's a really good one to look mm -hmm. at stories. And again, all the barriers to those who can't access abortion and those um, who then are able to access it and what that means to their lives. Mm -hmm. Great. We're going to, thanks, Elena. Um, we're going to go to the, her eminence, Tatiana Torres uh, is with us tonight and she's going to uh, share, share a little bit. Go ahead, Tati. And introduce yourself too, make sure you Yeah, know. it's so good to be with family tonight. Um, 
Tatiana Torres, I'm currently in uh, the nation's capital. I've been here for 10 years. <sighs> Where do I begin? So I think that to tie in what Lisa and Elena shared um, and Elizabeth as well, poverty, right? Mm -hmm. and, um, and, and what does that mean on the border of the United States of America? And what does that mean for the immigrant community in the country? Um, having been on the border and spent some time in a detention center for women and children in Delhi, Texas, um, a lot of the women that were there uh, that had come in from the caravan in 2018 um, really talked about their choice of having children and why they um, they had, you know, some of the stories are that they had four children and can only bring one. Um, but at least if they brought one, um, they knew that that one would be saved from the um, abuse and rape, uh, mental, verbal, physical of their partners, spouses, boyfriends. Um, so when we talk about poverty, we talk about the voice of the voiceless, the 11 million in the country um, that, that have this uh, uh, not just because a lot of those uh, now specifically speak of the Latino um, uh, migrants in the country, but I know that this also applies to other races as well, um, who have, do not know, are not educated to understand, do not speak the language. A lot of them come from tribal uh, Central American countries. So the son or daughter they brought with them is their translator. Um, because they speak Kichi or, or other languages that, that and, and to know and to understand um, healthcare is something that they have not accessed in their own land and to come here, it becomes even more complicated. But one thing I will, I will say is we have heard plenty of reports from women on the border in the past four years, plus plus, um, who have been sterilized and I will use that word um, and have been given hysterectomies not to have babies in this country. Um, my own mother, who migrated to the United States, was told um, when she came here, when she had my, my, my sister, um, you know, you could just get, get rid of the baby. It's, it's okay. It's your choice. And to her, that was like, well, I don't want to. I want to have this child. And that was her choice to do that along with uh, a decision she made for herself. Um, but she had a partner. She had a family unit that could be supportive of that. Um, a lot of the women that we see on the border come, especially this, this influx of women that have come in over the last year and a half, do not have that choice, do not know the language, do not know healthcare, do not understand. Um, so I just, I want to point that, that out of, of, of those individuals that do not, because of lack of education or understanding or language or culture, uh, do not have that option to make that decision or are forced to make decisions um, on their bodies that they do not agree with um, in order to block um, life, what they'll be for them in their own decision and in their own making. So I just want to put that out there. Um, I constantly think about those women because their voices and faces are in my, in my mind and heart constantly. Yeah, thank you. Thanks. And the, the last thing I'll say as we transition to Lisa on this is that one of the other things that we know is that there's dudes involved in this too. So we're centering, yeah. women, we're centering women's voices tonight. We're going to hear from Reverend Rob Shank in a little bit, but we think about women having an abortion. Mm -hmm. uh, and yet there's a dude involved in all this. And, and a lot of times it's the male's lack of responsibility and ownership and even um, many cases of abuse that 
uh, lead to this. So we we often like just disappear as if we're invisible in these situations. But I think it's important to name that, 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 that women are carrying the bulk of the moral and ethical navigation of this. And the guys often are just, you know, outside of this conversation. So we're centering their voices tonight, but we're not off the hook on this, right? And uh, so Lisa to you, and we're gonna name some of those gray areas. So thank you so much, Shane. I think when I think about some of the gray areas that tend to rule this conversation, because wherever there's gray, somebody can always step in and say, this is the flag. We are, you know, we almost rally around this flag. You must believe this. And unfortunately, a lot of people do. So a, a huge gray area um, comes from the question of when does life begin? When does life begin, right? What does the Bible even say about abortion? What does it say? People normally go to the favorite verse to go to is um, one, Psalm 139. Um, I knew you in your mother's womb, all of that. That's right. That's real. That's That was a poem, not law, um, not even history. It was a poem about something. Um, there are other scriptures in the, in the scripture, particularly around law, that, that directly refute the the weight that um, some Christians today have placed on abortion as a political issue. For example, there is a law that talks about if if a man um, causes a, uh, a, a fetus to die inside of a woman before being born, then that man will actually basically be brought up on civil charges. Like it's, it's like a civil infraction. But if the woman dies, then the man must be put to death. I mean, it's so, wow, what do we do with that? Like we, we literally don't even have a, a conception of that weighting of life in the Bible. You don't hear about this. So this is one of those gray areas. I think another gray area is, is the, the conception, the question of, of black women and abortion. You have no idea how often I hear, I don't know if you guys hear this as much as I do, but I definitely, I probably even hear it right after this. Someone will email me or text me or tweet me and say, but what about what about abortion? They're trying to kill black babies by, by aborting. See how they're centering. Planned Parenthood is focused, focused on black communities, especially in the South Bronx. And I, I have to come back to them. So this is one of those gray areas because the reality is, is that you do see lately, you see high rates of abortion among many black populations. But if you look with a, with a tighter lens, you'll be able to see that those populations are poor populations. In fact, you'll usually see that they are the poorest of the poor. So yes, South Bronx has a, a high abortion rate. The South Bronx and, and East New York actually is the one I'm thinking of. East New York is, the, is one of the poorest congressional districts in the nation. The same is true whenever you look at the um, places in black communities that have high rates of abortion, usually they also coincide with high rates of poverty. So again, this is also further evidence for the theory around poverty being a driver. Um, and, and also the reality that black women have to look at um, reproductive rights on a whole other side, which is what um, Shane was talking about, the right to actually have children, to make decisions about their bodies. So we, we approach it from a whole different space. So I wanna now open it up and ask others, what are some other gray areas that you see, places where others have kind of driven in a Mack truck and planted a flag because there's so much gray. I'm happy to speak, but don't want to dominate the conversation at all. 
Go for I it. Just, I just simply, I really think there's so much gray space just in the middle of pro-life and pro-choice. What does it like? What do, what is it like to be a pro-choice person with a pro-life ethic? Can those two ever marry each other? Because there is still a core belief in me that life is made by God and is precious and is made in his image. And what do we do to foster and protect and give as great a chance as possible for life to be born in healthy and safe ways? Um, and yet I recognize that the culture we have created is not healthy or safe for a vast majority of our populations. You know, when it comes, especially when I, when I work um, in my foundation, I talk a lot with women, especially women of color who say, my doctor doesn't believe me when I say I'm in pain. We know that there is bias within the healthcare profession profession, we know that there is huge discrepancies between the way that white people are treated and when people of color are treated. Mm -hmm. And there are not enough white voices speaking to say, look, by, by adamantly insisting that every woman birth, every child she becomes pregnant with, we are adamantly pushing women of color into a world and saying, hey, survive this, even though we've created a world you can't possibly survive. And how do we, as, as people who, who value life, ask women to do that? I'm not sure. So I, I really think that the biggest gray area for me is how do I function as a woman who does believe that in abortion access and who believes that life is made by God, how do we marry that ethic and those choices together is, is a complicated, nuanced and layered discussion to have. That's really great. Thank you so much, Elizabeth. I think I saw Rob lean in there. Rob, do you wanna, you wanna share? Yeah, I'm always a little reluctant on this subject only because I've become late in life and late in ministry work, uh, I, I've come to understand that women, okay, here comes a keen sense of the obvious, mm -hmm. are far closer to this question than a man will ever be. Mm -hmm. Our distance from this experience, from our knowledge of it, from our relationship to it, from the effect that it has, on us as men is so vast compared to the women in this conversation. This is very personal. Do I sound like I have some great revelation here? A man does not experience a pregnancy. We, we don't understand the relationship uh, to a pregnancy, to a fetal human, uh, everything from the emotions to the physiology of that, mm -hmm. not to mention the sociological, economic, psychological, every part of this. Mm -hmm. You guys know personally, I know it only theoretically. Mm, and that's a big difference. And I'm a guy who has sat with my wife, Cheryl, twice mm -hmm. as she birthed our children. Mm -hmm. And in both cases, I had them in my hands before she did. Mm -hmm. That was way back in ancient times when they didn't realize that child needs the breast now, <laughs> not after him. But anyway, I got both. And But even at that, my appreciation is at a vast uh, distance. 
from all this. So, you know, uh, this isn't so much the gray area as it is the certainty. Uh, and that is women know and experience and face the implications of this question in, in a manner men can only appreciate theoretically. So that's not to say that there isn't emotional involvement. Certainly there is. Mm -hmm. There's physical involvement. Generally speaking, a guy is present at conception, not always, but most of the time. Uh, and it's an intimate involvement there, but the implications of it mm -hmm. will always be at a safe distance. So that, that, that's one thing. In terms of the gray area, for me, I'm a minister... I practice more or less as a theologian these days. I deal with theological, biblical questions about religion, faith, etc. And I think there is a, a very great area here on what the Bible actually says about abortion. People mm -hmm. assume what it says, mm -hmm. or uh, will will uh, manipulate what it says. Mm -hmm. But the question is, what does it really say? And what about this absence of any reference to it by Jesus, the final authority in faith, in practice, in belief? He's the final authority. The only thing I can assume, I, I'm nominally Jewish by formation. My father was Jewish, my mother a convert to Judaism. I grew up a nominal Jew, but I keep company with a lot of rabbis and Jewish theologians these days. And there is a very different instruction on this question within Judaism mm -hmm. than there is within Christianity and, and most particularly evangelical Christianity. They are very, very different and almost opposite. And all we can assume, Jesus was Jewish, he was formed as a Jew, he was instructed as a Jew. It only makes sense that he held to the same belief system around this subject as all other Jews did at that time. So uh, it, it deserves examination. And, and I kind of wish we had a rabbi here to help yeah. us. With that. But can you can you explain what that very different Jewish position is? It's I mean, just, you know, in a, in a paragraph. Yes, I'm not an authority mm -hmm. as uh, a Jewish theologian would be, mm -hmm. uh, but I can tell you that in, in my research and discussions, the, the human in the womb is of a different status than the breathing autonomous child. Mm -hmm. And that allows for a number of things, including on the question of the preservation of life. If there is a question within Judaism, Jewish ethics, of whether, as Elizabeth, thank you for sharing your story with us. I received so much. It was, I was enriched by your story and felt the pain of it as much as uh, the, the joy with which you convey uh, so much of your own story today. But if there is the question between the life of the mother and the life of the developing uh, human in the womb, there is a moral obligation to abort the pregnancy, the fetal human. Not there might be, or you err on the side or anything. There is a moral obligation hmm. because the mother's life is of a different status. Hmm. I now head the Dietrich Bonhoeffer Institute in Washington, DC, named for the guy over my shoulder here. Hmm. 
brave, brilliant Christian ethicist, moral theologian, one of the first dissenting voices in the German church of the Nazi period to oppose Adolf Hitler and the heresy of Nazism is what, how I see it. Uh, and he wrote a, a very famous essay called The Right of Nascent Human Life. There was a reason, and many people cite it as uh, justification to completely denounce uh, and, and uh, even criminalize uh, abortion. Uh, but there's a reason that he termed it nascent human life, mm -hmm. because he saw it in a different category. He explains that in his essay. Most people know about the essay. They've never read it. They need to read it and read the context around it was Nazi forced abortion for racist reasons. Hello, somebody. Very important to understand that when you use uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer on the subject of abortion extremely important. So Thanks. all that to say, it opens up all kinds of gray areas on, on the theology, the morality, the ethics surrounding this question. I put that out, it's great. Wonderful, thank you so much. And I wanna to turn to Andrea now, because um, Andrea, I know that you have some thoughts, particularly on uh, evangelicalism and political association and identity. Yeah, so um, my name's Andrea Lucado and um, I'm a writer. Uh, I've written quite a bit about uh, purity culture lately and then also the connection with the pro-life movement. But I think from the context that I come from, which is um, white evangelicalism, I think there was a big question for me growing up or people I talked to is, can I be a Christian and not be a Republican? Can I be a Christian and vote for pro-choice candidates in kind of this gray area of what is my identity? Can I have a gray identity? Can I be 70% this and 20% that? And mm. I, it's changed so much, but I remember being a junior in high school on this trip in DC, this kind of for young leaders. And we sat down and we talked about, you know, the values of Democrats, the values of Republicans, where do you fall on the spectrum? And I thought, well, it seems like I'm a Democrat, but I'm pro-life. And I was being told to pick a category, but I didn't know how. And that's changed now. And um, the way that I would identify myself is, is very different now, but just kind of always being in this gray area of voting for liberal candidates um, since 2008, being an evangelical Christian. So I think the gray area of, do I have to have this label what am I categorized as my faith and my, how does that um, hold hands with my political affiliations? I think all of that can be really confusing and difficult and uncomfortable when you let yourself sit in the gray space. Oh, that is so good. And let me just say, we have one more. I want to um, go to Tatiana because Tatiana had a thought on the death penalty and life and, and our support of saying we're pro-life and then also being pro-death penalty. Tatiana. Yeah, so uh, like uh, like Andre, I was raised uh, evangelical myself as well, and all the, the the questions that she's asked and thoughts have come to my mind as well. But one that I've always um, wondered, and one that's come up um, recently with the thirteenth execution under the previous administration, um, has been how can <laughs> and it enrages me a little bit. How can mm -hmm. we say? that we are pro-life evangelical Christians and march here in Washington and bring banners and jars of babies because I've seen them, I live here. Mm -hmm. And then on the same, on that same drumbeat, go ahead and say, well, that person did it. So we should just go ahead and execute. And in the name of what is holy and God 
and what is what is the sanctity of life. We make decisions on terminating life without, as we've seen the past few months, even proper data, information, research, turning up of evidence. So and as an evangelical woman, I feel like, how dare we talk about pro-life mm. from the womb and forget about the tomb part of that statement? And how can we talk about being pro-life, yet we think that we can go ahead, especially people of color, and terminate life? Not that it's not been, I want to say that carefully, right? I want to say it in the context of what we are, where we've been in the past few years, but how can we take one stand on one thing and the other? In my own words, and this is my own opinion, that is hypocritical. And Man, that's I'm, glad, I'm glad you named that. I'm glad you named that. Ooh. Because I, I was one of those, Tatiana, too. I was one of the folks that was, I said I was pro-life, but I only thought in terms of abortion. Uh, and I, I was... Well, I would be more accurate to say that I was pro-birth, right? Uh, because mm. I was, uh, you know, for the death penalty. I grew up with guns. And part of why I've written about the death penalty and guns is because Christians have been the obstacles to life on those issues. We're the biggest, white evangelical Christians are the biggest gun-owning demographic in America. And we saw that manifest last week, right? We also are the biggest population uh, that is for the death penalty. So, you know, we, we, we would be more accurate to say we're pro-birth than pro-life. And, and so this idea that we're pro-life from womb to tomb really resonates with me. And, um, and Tatiana, one of the things that I thought of is people all the time say, well, you don't talk about reducing the number of executions. You talk about abolishing the death penalty. Why are you talking about reducing the number of abortions? And here's the difference that I would throw out there too, is that I cannot imagine a single incident where execution is the best that we can do, right? Like there's not a case for um, a, a, an execution that is defensible, I think, from a, a Christian perspective. Um, but on, the, on, on, a, on abortion, that's not true. I, I want to see the number of abortions reduced. I, I, and I think there's a lot of things that we can do to get there. But there are cases just like Elizabeth shared tonight, where I do believe that uh, abortion is the best decision that's, that a woman uh, has to make. So I think that's, that's a really important distinction as we're talking about this. Awesome. So I think I saw Rob lean forward. I'm going to call on you, Rob, to say what you were going to say. And then I want to open up the conversation and just ask everybody, and Rob, you can also respond to this too. Why is this so difficult? Like, why? What is it? I mean, literally, like even just coming into the conversation, it feels thick. Like there's stuff we got to get past in order to actually get to, to the actual question. And sometimes it's even hard to identify the actual question, right? It's so shrouded. Why is it so hard? Actually, the only reason I put up my hand was because I was going to link just as Shane did to the gun question, the Second Amendment. Okay. Uh, because uh, I, I see the same. In fact, it, it's worse than the death penalty because the death penalty, there, there is at least a process and a route of appeal. But once someone draws the weapon, 
and fires it into someone's chest or into someone's face or into someone's uh you know trunk of their body there's no root of appeal there's no appeal process possible it is a summary execution wow yeah and I, so I, yeah, sorry and in spite of the fact that of course in the case of the death penalty it is the operation of the state uh which then uh pretends to act uh for me uh, there's a lot of other factors there but in terms of the death uh, there is a a possibility with someone uh, condemned there is no possibility with a, some with someone who is shot in the backyard or in the front hallway so uh, those are questions we have to ask ourselves so that was my only purpose with the waved hand. Oh, I appreciate that now. actually. And, and, and okay, so I want to, I want to posit, I want to posit a theory and I'd love to get your feedback on this. Okay. So here's my theory. I think that one of the reasons why this is so hard, why it's so hard for us to have this, even to have the conversation usually in the church, I think we're having a great conversation, but it's hard to have these conversations in the church. And I think the biggest reason why is because the reason it's an, uh, a major political issue at all is not theological. The reason it's a major political reason at all is not ecclesiastical. Ecclesia, ecclesial. <laughs> the reason why it is a major issue is not that actually it even come from the church. It came from politics into the church and was framed by politics to, I believe, to get one end. It's a political end, meaning an end about power, an end about the way that we structure ourselves in society. And now I'm going to draw a little bit from Randall Balmer's um, conversation and his work uh, over the last several decades. Um, but it's about race as almost everything is in America. And we didn't talk about this here. So people who were not a part of the first conversation might not know what I'm talking about. And if you don't, I just want you to Google Randall Balmer, Politico, because he wrote this amazing piece in, in Politico about how Brown versus the Board of Education was the actual legislation that the religious right wants to turn over and, and has wanted to turn over for like the last, really the last 60 years um, since it passed. And instead, because they couldn't turn it over and they lost um, the case of Bob Jones University versus the USA in 1983, when they lost that case, which was trying to protect white space in Christian spaces, when they lost that on the basis of the Civil Rights Act, which was founded and stood on Brown versus the Board of Education, that same year, literally within weeks, they turned their focus and said, well, what we have to do is we have to overturn the Supreme Court in order to protect that space, protect our power. But we can't do it by going straight through the, you know, through the eyes and through the front door anymore, because that's just not gauche after the Civil Rights Act, after the Civil Rights Movement. So they said, well, what could we leverage to do that? 
ah, abortion, the abortion, um, the, the pushback against abortion was beginning to rise in America, especially in the church. And they started to see this is the issue that they can leverage. And so I think that part of the issue is that we're talking about something that actually isn't clear in scripture. It's not clear in terms of, even in terms of church history, it's been posited as clear and has been, has been shrouding the actual agenda, which it is achieving, which is white nationalism, white power. So I wonder, what do you guys think of that? <laughs> oh my gosh, gotta jump in here. This, you nailed it. I mean, <laughs> this has been okay. uh, my experience, you know, doing abortion advocacy in the Midwest. Um, it is never about just abortion. It's about control. It's about power. Who's more controlled? <laughs> and that includes women. It includes anyone who can get pregnant. And that includes femmes, non-binary trans folks. And so when I look at the, I will call it a coup attempt on Epiphany, January 6th, you know what? It was not a surprise to all of my abortion advocates that it happened, that there was so much violence, that it was really white Christian men, those waving their Trump saves flags um, and not Jesus saves, but that, you know, Trump saves. And it was not a shock to the reproductive rights community because the same people who stormed the Capitol are the same ones who are outside of clinics. And they are the ones who intimidate and they harass patients day in and day out and they pray in the name of God. And they're the same ones who want to control people's lives and bodies. And they're the same ones who then show up at the US Capitol. They're the same ones who this very week have thrown rocks through one of our abortion clinics in Toledo. They're the same ones who today shot a shotgun through a clinic in Knoxville. So, it's all in the end about how and how we main power, maintain power, whose power is maintained. And I think as we've seen the last four years with Trumpism, that backlash is about the loss of power for those who believe in Christian nationalism and white supremacy. We've seen it rear its head again and again. And we can draw a line. We can we easily were able to identify protesters at the US Capitol on January 6th because they are the same ones who are outside our clinics every day. Mm -hmm. So in the end, it is, it is so much about race. And when you peel back the layers and the onions, as you've you know, described the history and the politicization of this, this is so personal, but it's become so politicized. And up so that we can justify racism and that's all it is and it's insidious though i mean it has captivated people's minds it's captivated um you know i mean i haven't always been you know this progressive and this pro-choice i was once you know i could easily see myself as one of those people who were at in front of a clinic or at the capitol because i used to subscribe to the same theology that said Oh, obviously the Bible does not condone abortion or homosexuality. And I, but in the end, I realized like, wow, this is, this is not gospel. This is not, you know, a God of compassion um, who looked 
at women and valued their agency and said, you know, like Mary consented to, to Jesus. Uh, it was women who declared the gospel first. So I think we've got to get back to that. We've got to trust women. We've got to trust people as uh, agents of and stewards of their own bodies. And it's those who want to have dominion over others. It's whites, cis-tendered men who then are the leaders oftentimes of the anti-abortion movements. And I see it every day. It's really true. That is true. You know, I just wanted to say, um, and I realize I put out a theory. I asked for your input. Um, thank you, Elena. Um, it, can I just get a nod of heads? Do you guys, how do you feel about that? Or do you feel, if you feel like it's not really, it's not really hitting it, I, I think there might be something else. Please raise your hand. Let us know. What do you think? Okay, Rob. <laughs> Rob. The white, the white man among us. Go on, you go. <laughs> it, 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 it's just a half a hand. Okay, no, that's okay. Go for it. And the reason is because I agree completely with what Elena has said and the and the thread that uh, she has, you know, woven through all those connecting points. I think very, very important. I was a part of that. I was outside those clinics. Yeah. Yeah. I was shouting at women. I was blocking them. Mm -hmm. I was laying in the path of cars. Uh, I did that for 20 years. Mm -hmm. uh, I have great regret mm -hmm. for so much of that. Mm -hmm. Not the entirety of my involvement in the movement. I have to be candid about that. Mm -hmm. We facilitated beautiful adoptions we shepherded women into uh, medical uh, health care. Mm -hmm. We provided care for young babies and children at no cost. There were some good things that happened. There were women who sincerely thanked us. There were a few. Over time, those same controlling personalities seized the movement I was a part of. I remember it. I, I, I remember it well. I even remember when they started showing up, those toxic males, mm. uh, armed, uh, no kidding, big lizard skin boots, no kidding, five gallon uh, cowboy hats, mm -hmm. uh, and began to dominate even the movement. The, the people who had signed uh, not, uh, uh, pledges of nonviolence and assiduously practiced at least some form of it. They didn't realize, I didn't realize my language, my mouth was a weapon, my tongue was a weapon. It, it was muy complicado. But nonetheless, what I, the reason I sheepishly raised my hand was only because, as I saw, even in my days in the movement, before I had my own late in life conversion on, on all of this, it didn't speak for the majority of white evangelicals. They were getting a steady stream of propaganda. It was coming through media, Christian media. Mm -hmm. It was coming through massive numbers of fundraising letters that were that were uh, uh, raising 
tens of millions and hundreds of millions of dollars. I was there. I was at the table. I was with the fundraisers. Mm -hmm. And they would tell us over and over again, what we need to get you another million is a good villain. Give us a villain. Give us fear. Give us anger. And the more we have, the more we will raise. And they did. And we took to flying on Gulfstream jets. We were checking into six-star resort hotels. Wow. We were whining and dining. Top elected and appointed officials in the most expensive restaurants. Sometimes we would leave having spent $1,500 for four people to enjoy a meal. That All of that was a form of domination and control. As much as the violence was, mm -hmm. uh, the manipulation of the kind of average American white Christian who doesn't know really what to think, how to think, very little to no guidance from the pastor or church leadership. All they're doing is they're listening to radio back in the day. Mm -hmm. Now it's online. They're watching television, now video streaming. And they're getting barraged with email and with paper mail. Mm -hmm. So those are instruments of control. And what was one of the winners on all of that? Abortion. One easy villain. The abortionist and the selfish woman who chooses comfortable lifestyle, education, and career opportunities at the expense of a innocent baby's life. Great. You got villains and heroes. The people who come and intervene are the heroes. It's black and white. It's night and day. It's sloganeering. You can put it on a bumper sticker. And if you can, you can raise money on it. And if you can raise enough money, you can control people's lives, whole churches, communities, and even the country. Yeah. I want to actually, I want to shift over very quickly to Andrea, Andrea, because she has a theory about scapegoating that I think is really apropos here. Um, and it, it speaks directly, Rob, to what you were talking about. Um, and then I want to move to Tatiana, because I think Tatiana also has a word for us here. And then Shane, you can, you can close us. Yeah, I mean, Rob was just talking about how, um, the person choosing to get the abortion was kind of the perfect villain, the perfect target, or as you could say, and kind of just um, a lot of work done in scapegoat theory and how tribes stay together and what they did when there was a threat to their unity. You choose a scapegoat, you all go after it. The scapegoat doesn't have a voice. It's just something that the collective violence can work toward that restores peace. And the idea with Christ is that he was kind of this final scapegoat. Um, he was the scapegoat who could speak. He spoke from the cross. This is Rene Girard theory. This isn't me. Um, but so there's kind of like, we don't need this scapegoat mechanism anymore, but we, we use it all the time. What Lisa was talking about, um, just the black body being the scapegoat in this, um, wanting to maintain this sense of white supremacy and power. And when that was threatened, that that's, been the scapegoat for hundreds of years in this in this country and so I see that in the in the pro-life movement of victimizing or yeah creating the woman to be the scapegoat and 
I don't want people to be duped by that. We don't have to default to that mechanism anymore. Christ kind of came to end that sort of collective violence. And I've seen this just happen too much um, with the, the female body in evangelical circles. And I would just ask you to kind of question that, step back, see if you're a part of that mechanism and how we can, in Christ, um, be better than that. Mm, so, so good. Oh, thank you so much for that. Your scapegoat theory, literally, um, it, it was ground shifting for me. And anybody who wants to read more on that, they can check out Andrea Lucado, Lucado's um, article on this in the Washington Post. So just Google Andrea Lucado, abortion, um, Washington Post. Okay, Tati. You know, I think as, as uh, people of God and believers, right, when we talk about the words of Christ and the actions of Christ. Um, I, I've been thinking a lot about since the insurrection on January 6th, what would Jesus, our savior do if he were here that day? Mm. Um, and, it, and, and it ties to the, the, everything we've been talking about. Our savior was an advocate. Our savior, as Andrea said, took on the pain, the suffering, the, the questions, the confusion, um, he didn't take on religion. He took on relationship. And I, I think that as a Christian and then listening to all this, yes, abortion is a topic that's had us divided politically. I mean, we've just been through it. We've just been through a year where this topic was the number one topic that divided folks in the country, 74 to 70. No. So this is, this is, a topic that still needs to be discussed. And no, if you are a pro-birth, pro-life Christian, you can vote to impact the issues that are causing the root cause of a lot of why women make the decision, which is poverty and the lack of resources, lack of access to health. So I think if back to Christ and to our conversation as red letter Christians, right? To the words that he spoke, to the life that he spoke, both for for Christians and Catholics, however you define your Christianism, right? Um, I think we must focus on the tender heart of a savior that loves to embrace and not shame the arms of a savior. Yeah. The mm -hmm. arms of a savior that is not here to point fingers at women that had to make these decisions for help like you, Elizabeth, for whatever it might be. A savior that is merciful and graceful that allowed a woman to pour perfume on his feet that she probably bought mm -hmm. in what we would consider not the purest form. Mm -hmm. So how are we to raise our fingers and judge women and shame them away from the loving arms of the Christ that we have all of the savior that we have all come to believe in. So as we talk about abortion, as believers, we have to take the political part of, of the white supremacist, white language, white conversation out of it and look at it with a heart of God. And if we stand with the heart of God, then this is not a, a tough conversation to have because whether a woman has an abortion or not, our duty is to embrace and love and to uphold and support and also advocate because that's what our savior would have done if he would have been here. Mm -hmm. And many of our women of color 
and many of, of the men as well that stay silent must take a stand to defend and protect as well and lend a voice like you have Rob, like you have Shane, like our savior would have done if he were alive today. He wouldn't have stormed a Capitol. He wouldn't have thrown a rock at a clinic in Toledo, Ohio. He would have embraced those and guided to the decision that was appropriate for that person as he did throughout scripture. Thank you. Shane. Ooh, spirit move, spirit's moving up in here. You might not have thought you were coming to church tonight. <laughs> I'm grateful. I'm so grateful for you, Tatiana, those words, for each of you, what you've shared. Um, boy, I, 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 um, I, I hope that all of you listening will continue to create circles of friends like this, where we can listen to each other and especially making sure that women and diverse women are centered in that conversation, right? I, I just think in this last election, I, I remember seeing a poll and the only group, the only voting demographic that listed abortion as one of their top priorities was white evangelicals. So that doesn't mean it shouldn't matter, but it means we need to just step back a little bit and, and, and think about all of the intersections of these issues of life mm. and how we can be a better affirmer and champion of life. So this is, we knew that we wouldn't solve all of this in a night. And there's a whole ton of questions that are coming in that we didn't get to. But I wanna say that hopefully this is not the end, but just the beginning. And, and more than anything that we've been able to model a respectful conversation uh, around this really, really difficult and very personal um, thing that, that impacts so many lives. So um, we're going to, I'm going to pass it back to Lisa, who, who's been my partner in all this and someone that I, I bounce a lot of my thoughts off of. So it's, it's a gift of being able to moderate this with you, Lisa, and, and thank you everybody for being a conversation partner tonight. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Shane. And it's a real, it's a joy to partner with you everywhere in any space. Um, just call brother, I'm there. And um, I want to offer each person an opportunity to, to say one last piece. Um, and, and I won't, we won't do one minute. We'll do 30 seconds <laughs> or is 30 seconds. Just cut it. You know, you already had it short. Just cut it again. Um, but what's the one last thought that you have for our listening um, audience that you want to stick with them? You want this, this is your parting words to them. And then we'll, we'll close for the evening, close the conversation for the evening. And I'll start with Elizabeth who started us off tonight. Sure, thank you again. I think my final thought would go specifically to the community who was just like I was, which is that evangelical, true sincere believer community who is really trying to listen to this conversation. And I just wanna give you permission to not have all the answers. That it's okay right now if you haven't evolved from one extreme to another. The fact that you're listening is good, is a great start. And I just wanna give you permission to like sit with questions just to sit with it with, I know it's tense and it's uncomfortable and it's really hard to sit in spaces that feel gray and like you're just not sure if that's true or right or good or moral. 
Um, but allow yourself that tension and the permission to not have the perfect answer. Because I think by asking questions and being willing to listen to people's perspectives who are different than your own and people's experiences who are different than what you've been told, there's so much light and hope at the end of that journey. So I just want to encourage people who are listening who just, they're not really sure where they land right now. This just all feels like a little bit too much. I just want to give you a lot of grace and space to say, just be it's all right if you don't have all the answers right now keep listening because you'll find it that's you'll great find it. thank you elizabeth elena likewise i just want to encourage us all to um sit with that complexity that to reject the binary this is not about just being pro-life or pro-choice people are often somewhere in the messy middle that's life life is messy and i want to just invite us all to, to, to embrace that, that God is found in the gray, that we, this is not a binary conversation. People are more complex than that. And listen to the stories. Does everyone love someone who's had an abortion? It could be your mom, like Shane has shared. It could be, you know, your professor, like Elizabeth. It can be anyone. And so to remember that, to humanize this conversation that often becomes so vitriolic and dehumanizing, but just remember that. And then for those who are believers to, um, to meet at the cross, Tati uh, said, like, to remember that in the end, no matter where you stand, that we stand before God. And that is where our love and our hope and uh, that's where we'll find the answers, whatever they look like. Awesome. Thank you so much, Elena. Uh, Andrea. Yeah, something Elizabeth said at the beginning has really stuck with me, which is that to collect data, you need stories. But around abortion, women have been, or people who've had abortions have been too ashamed to share their stories, so there can't be data. So I think my the call that I feel and the call that I would offer is let's be safe places to tell stories, um, whether you are a uh, woman who's had an abortion, whether you're someone who has a really difficult, long um, infertility journey, like let's just be people who are here to share. I believe Brene Brown talks about how shame um, grows in the dark. And so as much as we can keep our stories in the light, that shame goes away. So I want to be a safe person for people to share their stories. And um, that would be my call to those listening. Fabulous. Thank you so much, Andrea. And Rob, I'll make it very short. I think a fundamental question for every Christian who feels certain on this question or wants to be certain on this question should just ask ourselves, is this about justifying myself mm. and feeling better than the other? Or is this about understanding and meeting the need of the other? I think that's an important question. So good, thank you. Says the pastor, you can tell that's a pastor's question. Um, and Tatiana. Micah 6, 8. O mortal, what does the Lord require of you? To do justice, to love mercy and to walk humbly. And I, if you think about everything we've said tonight, that verse wraps up. Uh, the call of God to us. He has been good to us. So we must walk humbly, love mercy, and do justice. 
very good. And Shane. I yield my time. I, I'm so grateful for tonight and I hope you all will keep the conversation going. Um, this has been a holy space. Let's keep creating more spaces like this. Back to you, Lisa. I think my only, my only thought, um, I think every, everyone else has really said everything that I was thinking, except that we have, we have allowed ourselves over the last four years, especially, but it didn't start with Trump. Um, it's really it's probably been since the mid 1990s, um, if not the 1980s with, with the rise of the religious right, that we've allowed ourselves to see the other as the enemy and in that, that dehumanizes people. And it's also dehumanized this issue. Um, this issue is a human issue. This has to do with people's bodies. This has to do with people's capacity to exercise agency, dominion over their own bodies, over their own lives. It has to do with our faith. It has to do with the actual scripture, what it actually says in its actual context, which was about actual people in actual time, living actual lives in an actual story that tells us about God and God's relationship with us. And so I think we need to reground this issue in soil, in actual earth, in real stories, for it to be human again, and not just a wedge. So with that, we bless you to continue the conversations in your own circles. I recommend that you have them in story circles so that it's, you just focus on each other's stories, just open up opportunities for people to share their stories. Um, no other thing than stories and the circle. Um, but we ask you, um, we ask you to continue the conversation and we'll be back. We'll be back with another town hall at some point soon. We know in the meantime, God bless you. And thank you for coming tonight. Good night y'all blessings. Thank you for being a part of this important conversation. This concludes part two of a two-part town hall series on abortion. For more information on Red Letter Christians, please visit us at redletterchristians.org. Thank you for listening.